This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Shunned House by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Greg Marguerite for LibriVox. It runs one hour, seven minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. The Shunned House by H. P. Lovecraft. From even the greatest horrors, irony is seldom absent. Sometimes it enters directly into the composition of the events, while sometimes it relates only to their fortuitous position among persons and places. The latter sort is splendidly exemplified by a case in the ancient city of Providence, where in the late forties Edgar Allan Poe used to sojourn often during his unsuccessful wooing of the gifted poetess Mrs. Whitman. Poe generally stopped at the mansion house in Benefit Street, the renamed Golden Ball Inn, whose roof has sheltered Washington, Jefferson, and Lafayette, and his favorite walk led northward along the same street to Mrs. Whitman's home and the neighboring hillside churchyard of St. John's, whose hidden expanse of eighteenth-century gravestones had for him a peculiar fascination. Now, the irony is this. In this walk, so many times repeated, the world's greatest master of the terrible and the bizarre was obliged to pass a particular house on the eastern side of the street, a dingy, antiquated structure perched on the abruptly rising side hill, with a great unkempt yard dating from a time when the region was partly open country. It does not appear that he ever wrote or spoke of it, nor is there any evidence that he even noticed it. And yet that house— to the two persons in possession of certain information, equals or outranks in horror the wildest fantasy of the genius who so often passed it unknowingly, and stands starkly leering as a symbol of all that is unutterably hideous. The house was, and for that matter still is, a kind to attract the attention of the curious. Originally a farm or semi-farm building, it followed the average New England colonial lines of the middle eighteenth century. The prosperous peaked roof sort, with two stories and dormerless attic, and with the Georgian doorway and the interior paneling dictated by the progress of taste at that time. It faced south, with one gable end buried to the lower windows in the eastward-rising hill, and the other exposed to the foundations toward the street. Its construction over a century and a half ago had followed the grading and straightening of the road in that especial vicinity for Benefit Street, at first called Back Street, was laid out as a lane winding amongst the graveyards of the first settlers, and straightened only when the removal of the bodies to the north burial ground made it decently possible to cut through the old family plots. At the start, the western wall had lain some twenty feet up a precipitous lawn from the roadway but a widening of the street at about the time of the revolution sheared off most of the intervening space exposing the foundations so that a brick basement wall had to be made giving a deep cellar a street frontage with door and one window above ground close to the new line of public travel 
When the sidewalk was laid out a century ago, the last of the intervening space was removed, and Poe in his walks must have seen only a sheer ascent of dull gray brick flush with the sidewalk, and surmounted at a height of ten feet by the antique shingled bulk of the house proper. The farm-like ground extended back very deeply up the hill, almost to Wheaton Street. The space south of the house, abutting on Benefit Street, was of course greatly above the existing sidewalk level, forming a terrace bounded by a high bank wall of damp, mossy stone, pierced by a steep flight of narrow steps which led inward between canyon-like surfaces to the upper region of mangy lawn, roomy brick walls, and neglected gardens, whose dismantled cement urns, rusted kettles fallen from tripods of knotty sticks, and similar paraphernalia set off the weather-beaten front door with its broken fanlight, rotting ionic pilasters, and wormy triangular pediment. What I heard in my youth about the shunned house was merely that people died there in alarmingly great numbers. That, I was told, was why the original owners had moved out some twenty years after building the place. It was plainly unhealthy, perhaps because of the dampness and fungus growths in the cellar, the general sickish smell, the draughts of the hallways, or the quality of the well and pump water. These things were bad enough, and these were all that gained belief among the persons whom I knew. Only the notebooks of my antiquarian uncle, Dr. Elihu Whipple, revealed to me at length the darker, vaguer surmises which formed an undercurrent of folklore among old-time servants and humble folk. Surmises which never traveled far, and which were largely forgotten when Providence grew to be a metropolis with a shifting modern population. The general fact is that the house was never regarded by the solid part of the community as in any real sense haunted. There were no widespread tales of rattling chains, cold currents of air, extinguished lights, or faces at the window. Extremists sometimes said the house was unlucky, but that is as far as even they went. What was really beyond dispute is that a frightful proportion of persons died there, or more accurately, had died there, since after some peculiar happenings over sixty years ago the building had become deserted through the sheer impossibility of renting it. These persons were not all cut off suddenly by any one cause. Rather did it seem that their vitality was insidiously sapped, so that each one died the sooner from whatever tendency to weakness he may have naturally had, and those who did not die displayed in varying degree a type of anemia or consumption, and sometimes a decline of the mental facilities, which spoke ill for the salubriousness of the building. Neighboring houses, it must be added, seemed entirely free from the noxious quality. This much I knew before my insistent questioning led my uncle to show me the notes which finally embarked us both on our hideous investigation. In my childhood the shunned house was vacant, with barren, gnarled, and terrible old trees, long, queerly pale grass, and nightmarishly misshapen weeds in the high terraced yard where birds never lingered. We boys used to overrun the place, and I can still recall my youthful terror, not only at the morbid strangeness of this sinister vegetation, but at the eldritch atmosphere and odor of the dilapidated house whose unlocked front door was often entered in quest of shutters. The small paned windows were largely broken, 
and a nameless air of desolation hung round the precarious paneling, shaky interior shutters, peeling wallpaper, falling plaster, rickety staircases, and such fragments of battered furniture as still remained. The dust and cobwebs added their touch of the fearful, and brave indeed was the boy who would voluntarily ascend the ladder to the attic, a vast raftered length lighted only by small blinking windows in the gable ends, and filled with a massed wreckage of chests, chairs, and spinning wheels, which infinite years of deposit had shrouded and festooned into monstrous and hellish shapes. But, after all, the attic was not the most terrible part of the house. It was the dank, humid cellar, which somehow exerted the strongest repulsion on us, even though it was wholly above ground on the street side, with only a thin door and window-pierced brick wall to separate it from the busy sidewalk. We scarcely knew whether to haunt it in spectral fascination or to shun it for the sake of our souls and our sanity. For one thing, the bad odor of the house was strongest there and for another thing we did not like the white fungus growths which occasionally sprang up in rainy summer weather from the hard earth floor those fungi grotesquely like the vegetation in the yard outside were truly horrible in their outlines detestable parodies of toadstools and indian pipes whose like we had never seen in any other situation they rotted quickly and at one stage became slightly phosphorescent, so that nocturnal passers-by sometimes spoke of witch-fires glowing behind the broken panes of the fetter-spreading windows. We never, even in our wildest Halloween moods, visited this cellar by night. But in some of our daytime visits could detect the phosphorescence, especially when the day was dark and wet. There was also a subtler thing we often thought we detected. A very strange thing, which was, however, merely suggestive at most. I refer to a sort of cloudy, whitish pattern on the dirt floor, a vague shifting deposit of mold or niter, which we sometimes thought we could trace amidst the sparse fungus growth near the huge fireplace of the basement kitchen. Once in a while it struck us that this patch bore an uncanny resemblance to a doubled-up human figure, though generally no such kinship existed and often there was no whitish deposit whatever. On a certain rainy afternoon, when this illusion seemed phenomenally strong, and when, in addition, I had fancied I glimpsed a kind of thin, yellowish, shimmering exhalation rising from the nitrous pattern toward the yawning fireplace, I spoke to my uncle about the matter. He smiled at this odd conceit, but it seemed that his smile was tinged with reminiscence. Later I heard that a similar notion entered into some of the wild ancient tales of the common folk, a notion likewise alluding to ghoulish, wolfish shapes taken by smoke from the great chimney, and queer contours assumed by certain of the sinuous tree-roots that thrust their way into the cellar through the loose foundation stones. CHAPTER Two. Not till my adult years did my uncle set before me the notes and data which he had collected concerning the shunned house. Dr. Whipple was a sane, conservative physician of the old school, and for all his interest in the place was not eager to encourage young thoughts toward the abnormal. His own view, postulating simply a building and location of markedly unsanitary qualities, had nothing to do with abnormality. But he realized that the very picturesqueness which aroused his own interest would, in a boy's fanciful mind, take on all manner of gruesome imaginative associations. 
The doctor was a bachelor, a white-haired, clean-shaven, old-fashioned gentleman, and a local historian of note, who had often broken a lance with such controversial guardians of tradition as Sidney S. Ryder and Thomas W. Bicknell. He lived with one manservant in a Georgian homestead with knocker and iron-railed steps, balanced eerily on the steep ascent of North Court Street, beside the ancient brick court and colony house where his grandfather, a cousin of that celebrated privateersman Captain Whipple, who burnt His Majesty's armed schooner Gaspee in 1772, had voted in the legislature on May 4, 1776, for the independence of the Rhode Island colony. Around him, in the damp, low-ceilinged library, with the musty white paneling, heavy carved overmantel, and small-paned, vine-shaded windows, were the relics and records of his ancient family, among which were the many dubious allusions to the shunned house in Benefit Street. That pest-spot lies not far distant, for Benefit runs ledgewise just above the courthouse along the precipitous hill up which the first settlement climbed. When, in the end, my insistent pestering and maturing years evoked from my uncle the hoarded lore I sought, there lay before me a strange enough chronicle. Long-winded, statistical, and drearily genealogical as some of the matter was, there ran through it a continuous thread of brooding tenacious horror and preternatural malevolence, which impressed me even more than it had impressed the good doctor. Separate events fitted together uncannily, and seemingly irrelevant details held minds of hideous possibilities. A new and burning curiosity grew in me, compared to which my boyish curiosity was feeble and inchoate. The first revelation led to an exhaustive research, and finally to that shuddering quest which proved so disastrous to myself and mine. For at the last, my uncle insisted on joining the search I had commenced, and after a certain night in that house, he did not come away with me. I am lonely without that gentle soul, whose long years were filled only with honor, virtue, good taste, benevolence, and learning. I have reared a marble urn to his memory in St. John's churchyard, the place that Poe loved, the hidden grove of giant willows on the hill where tombs and headstones huddle quietly between the hoary bulk of the church and the houses and bank walls of Benefit Street. The history of the house, opening amidst a maze of dates, revealed no trace of the sinister, either about its construction or about the prosperous and honorable family who built it. Yet from the first a taint of calamity soon increased to boding significance was apparent. My uncle's carefully compiled record began with the building of the structure in 1763, and followed the theme with an unusual amount of detail. The shunned house, it seems, was first inhabited by William Harris and his wife Roby Dexter, with their children, Elkanah, born in 1755, Abigail, born in 1757, William Jr., born in 1759, and Ruth, born in 1761. Harris was a substantial merchant and seaman in the West India trade, connected with the firm of Obadiah Brown and his nephews. After Brown's death in 1761, the new firm of Nicholas Brown and Company made him master of the brig Prudence, Providence-built, of 120 tons, thus enabling him to erect the new homestead he had desired ever since his marriage. The site he had chosen, a recently straightened part of the new and fashionable back street, which ran along the side of the hill above crowded Cheapside, was all that could be wished, and the building did justice to the location. 
It was the best that moderate means could afford, and Harris hastened to move in before the birth of a fifth child which the family expected. That child, a boy, came in December, but was stillborn, nor was any child to be born alive in that house for a century and a half. The next April sickness occurred among the children, and Abigail and Ruth died before the month was over. Dr. Job Ives diagnosed the trouble as some infantile fever, though others declared it was more of a mere wasting away or decline. It seemed in any event to be contagious, for Hannah Bowden, one of the two servants, died of it in the following June. Eli Ladison, the other servant, constantly complained of weakness, and would have returned to his father's farm in Rehoboth, but for a sudden attachment for Metabel Pierce, who was hired to succeed Hannah. He died the next year, a sad year indeed, since it marked the death of William Harris himself, enfeebled as he was by the climate of Martinique, where his occupation had kept him for considerable periods during the preceding decade. The widowed Roby Harris never recovered from the shock of her husband's death, and the passing of her firstborn, Elkanah, two years later, was the final blow to her reason. In 1768 she fell victim to a mild form of insanity, and was thereafter confined to the upper part of the house. Her elder maiden sister, Mercy Dexter, having moved in to take charge of the family. Mercy was a plain, raw-boned woman of great strength, but her health visibly declined from the time of her advent. She was greatly devoted to her unfortunate sister, and had an especial affection for her only surviving nephew, William, who from a sturdy infant had become a sickly, spindling lad. In this year the servant Metabel died, and the other servant, Preservant Smith, left without coherent explanation or at least with only some wild tales and a complaint that he disliked the smell of the place. For a time Mercy could secure no more help, since the seven deaths and case of madness all occurring within five years' space had begun to set in motion the body of fireside rumor which later became so bizarre. Ultimately, however, she obtained new servants from out of town. Anne White, a morose woman from that part of North Kingstown, now set off as the township of Exeter, and a capable Boston man named Zenas Lowe. It was Anne White who first gave definite shape to the sinister idle talk. Mercy should have known better than to hire anyone from the Nooseneck Hill country, for that remote bit of backwoods was then, as now, a seat of the most uncomfortable superstitions. As lately as 1892, an Exeter community exhumed a dead body and ceremoniously burnt its heart in order to prevent certain alleged visitations injurious to the public health and peace, and one may imagine the point of view of the same section in 1768. Anne's tongue was perniciously active, and within a few months Mercy discharged her, filling her place with a faithful and amiable Amazon from Newport, Maria Robbins. Meanwhile, poor Roby Harris, in her madness, gave voice to dreams and imaginings of the most hideous sort. At times her screams became insupportable, and for long periods she would utter shrieking horrors which necessitated her son's temporary residence with his cousin, Peleg Harris, in Presbyterian Lane near the new college building. The boy would seem to improve after these visits, and had Mercy been as wise as she was well-meaning, she would have let him live permanently with Peleg. Just what Mrs. Harris cried out in her fits of violence, tradition hesitates to say, or rather presents such extravagant accounts that they nullify themselves through sheer absurdity. 
Certainly it sounds absurd to hear that a woman educated only in the rudiments of French often shouted for hours in a coarse and idiomatic form of that language, or that the same person, alone and guarded, complained wildly of a staring thing which bit and chewed at her. In 1772 the servant Zenas died, and when Mrs. Harris heard of it she laughed with a shocking delight utterly foreign to her. The next year she herself died, and was laid to rest in the North Burial Ground beside her husband. Upon the outbreak of trouble with Great Britain in 1775, William Harris, despite his scant sixteen years and feeble constitution, managed to enlist in the Army of Observation under General Greene and from that time on enjoyed a steady rise in health and prestige. In 1780, as a captain in the Rhode Island forces in New Jersey under Colonel Angell, he met and married Phoebe Hetfield of Elizabethtown, whom he brought to Providence upon his honorable discharge in the following year. The young soldier's return was not a thing of unmitigated happiness. The house, it is true, was still in good condition, and the street had been widened and changed in name from Back Street to Benefit Street. But Mercy Dexter's once robust frame had undergone a sad and curious decay, so that she was now a stooped and pathetic figure, with hollow voice and disconcerting pallor, qualities shared to a singular degree by the one remaining servant, Maria. In the autumn of 1782 Phoebe Harris gave birth to a stillborn daughter, and on the fifteenth of the next May, Mercy Dexter took leave of a useful, austere, and virtuous life. William Harris, at last thoroughly convinced of the radically unhealthful nature of his abode, now took steps toward quitting it and closing it forever. Securing temporary quarters for himself and his wife at the newly opened Golden Ball Inn, he arranged for the building of a new and finer house in Westminster Street, in the growing part of the town across the Great Bridge. There, in 1785, his son Duty was born, and there the family dwelt till the encroachments of commerce drove them back across the river and over the hill to Angell Street in the newer East Side Residence District, where the late Archer Harris built his sumptuous but hideous French-roofed mansion in 1876. William and Phoebe both succumbed to the yellow fever epidemic of 1797, but Duty was brought up by his cousin Rathbone Harris. Peleg's son. Rathbone was a practical man, and rented the Benefit Street house despite William's wish to keep it vacant. He considered it an obligation to his ward to make the most of all the boy's property, nor did he concern himself with the deaths and illnesses which caused so many changes of tenants, or the steadily growing aversion with which the house was generally regarded. It is likely that he felt only vexation when, in 1804, the town council ordered him to fumigate the place with sulfur, tar, and gum camphor, on account of the much-discussed deaths of four persons, presumably caused by the then-diminishing fever epidemic. They said the place had a febrile smell. Duty himself thought little of the house, for he grew up to be a privateersman and served with distinction on the Vigilant under Captain Cahoon in the War of 1812. He returned unharmed, married in 1814, and became a father on that memorable night of September 23, 1815, when a great gale drove the waters of the bay over half the town, and floated a tall sloop well up Westminster Street, so that its masts almost tapped the Harris windows in symbolic affirmation that the new boy, Welcome, was a seaman's son. 
Welcome did not survive his father, but lived to perish gloriously at Fredericksburg in 1862. Neither he nor his son Archer knew of the shunned house as other than a nuisance almost impossible to rent, perhaps on account of the mustiness and sickly odor of unkempt old age. Indeed, it never was rented after a series of deaths culminating in 1861, which the excitement of the war tended to throw into obscurity. Carrington Harris, last of the male line, knew it only as a deserted and somewhat picturesque center of legend until I told him my experience. He had meant to tear it down and build an apartment house on the site, but after my account decided to let it stand, install plumbing, and rent it. Nor has he yet had any difficulty in obtaining tenants. The horror has gone. Chapter 3 it may well be imagined how powerfully I was affected by the annals of the Harrises. In this continuous record there seemed to me to brood a persistent evil beyond anything in nature as I had known it, an evil clearly connected with the house and not with the family. This impression was confirmed by my uncle's less systematic array of miscellaneous data, legends transcribed from servant gossip, cuttings from the papers, copies of death certificates by fellow physicians, and the like. All of this material I cannot hope to give, for my uncle was a tireless antiquarian and very deeply interested in the shunned house. But I may refer to several dominant points which earn notice by their recurrence through many reports from diverse sources. For example, the servant gossip was practically unanimous in attributing to the fungus and malodorous cellar of the house a vast supremacy in evil influence. There had been servants, Anne White especially, who would not use the cellar kitchen, and at least three well-defined legends bore upon the queer quasi-human or diabolic outlines assumed by tree roots and patches of mold in that region. These latter narratives interested me profoundly on account of what I had seen in my boyhood, but I felt that most of the significance had in each case been largely obscured by additions from the common stock of local ghost lore. Anne White, with her Exeter superstition, had promulgated the most extravagant and at the same time most consistent tale alleging that there must lie buried beneath the house one of those vampires, the dead who retain their bodily form and live on the blood or breath of the living, whose hideous legions send their praying shapes or spirits abroad by night. To destroy a vampire one must, the grandmothers say, exhume it and burn its heart, or at least drive a stake through that organ. And Anne's dogged insistence on a search under the cellar had been prominent in bringing about her discharge. Her tales, however, commanded a wide audience, and were the more readily accepted because the house indeed stood on land once used for burial purposes. To me their interest depended less on this circumstance than on the peculiarly appropriate way in which they dovetailed with certain other things. The complaint of the departing servant, Preservant Smith, who had preceded Anne and never heard of her, that something sucked his breath at night. The death certificates of the fever victims of 1804 issued by Dr. Chad Hopkins and showing the four deceased persons all unaccountably lacking in blood. And the obscure passages of poor Roby Harris's ravings, where she complained of the sharp teeth of a glassy-eyed, half-visible presence. 
free from unwarranted superstition though I am, these things produced in me an odd sensation, which was intensified by a pair of widely separated newspaper cuttings relating to deaths in the shunned house. One from the Providence Gazette and Country Journal of April 12, 1815, and the other from the Daily Transcript and Chronicle of October 27, 1845 each of which detailed an appallingly grisly circumstance whose duplication was remarkable. It seems that in both instances the dying person, in 1815 a gentle old lady named Stafford, and in 1845 a schoolteacher of middle age named Elizar Durfree, became transfigured in a horrible way, glaring glassily and attempting to bite the throat of the attending physician. Even more puzzling, though, was the final case which put an end to the renting of the house. A series of anemia deaths, preceded by progressive madness, wherein the patient would craftily attempt the lives of his relatives by incisions in the neck or wrist. This was in 1860 and 1861, when my uncle had just begun his medical practice, and before leaving for the front he heard much of it from his elder professional colleagues. The really inexplicable thing was the way in which the victims, ignorant people, for the ill-smelling and widely shunned house could now be rented to no others, would babble maledictions in French, a language they could not possibly have studied to any extent. It made one think of poor Roby Harris nearly a century before, and so moved my uncle that he commenced collecting historical data on the house, after listening, some time subsequent to his return from the war, to the first-hand accounts of Doctors Chase and Whitemarsh. Indeed, I could see that my uncle had thought deeply on the subject, and that he was glad of my own interest, an open-minded and sympathetic interest which enabled him to discuss with me matters at which others would merely have laughed. His fancy had not gone so far as mine, but he felt that the place was rare in its imaginative potentialities, and worthy of note as an inspiration in the field of the grotesque and macabre. For my part I was disposed to take the whole subject with profound seriousness, and began at once not only to review the evidence, but to accumulate as much more as I could. I talked with the elderly Archer Harris, then owner of the house, many times before his death in 1916 and obtained from him and his still-surviving maiden sister Alice an authentic corroboration of all the family data my uncle had collected. When, however, I asked them what connection with France or its language the house could have, they confessed themselves as frankly baffled and ignorant as I. Archer knew nothing, and all that Miss Harris could say was that an old illusion her grandfather, Duty Harris, had heard of might have shed a little light. The old seaman who had survived his son Welcome's death in battle by two years had not himself known the legend, but recalled that his earliest nurse, the ancient Maria Robbins, seemed darkly aware of something that might have lent a weird significance to the French raving of Roby Harris, which she had so often heard during the last days of that hapless woman. Maria had been at the shunned house from 1769 till the removal of the family in 1783 and had seen Mercy Dexter die. Once she hinted to the child Duty of a somewhat peculiar circumstance in Mercy's last moments, but he had soon forgotten all about it, save that it was something peculiar. The granddaughter, moreover, recalled even this much with difficulty. She and her brother were not so much interested in the house as was Archer's son Carrington, the present owner with whom I talked after my experience. 
Having exhausted the Harris family of all the information it could furnish, I turned my attention to early town records and deeds with a zeal more penetrating than that which my uncle had occasionally shown in the same work. What I wished was a comprehensive history of the site from its very settlement in 1636, or even before, if any Narragansett Indian legends could be unearthed to supply the data. I found at the start that the land had been part of the long strip of home-lot granted originally to John Throckmorton, one of many similar strips beginning at the town street beside the river and extending up over the hill to a line roughly corresponding with the modern Hope Street. The Throckmorton lot had later, of course, been much subdivided, and I became very assiduous in tracing that section through which Back or Benefit Street was later run. It had, as rumor indeed said, been the Throckmorton graveyard, but as I examined the records more carefully I found that the graves had all been transferred at an early date to the North Burial Ground on the Pawtucket West Road. Then suddenly I came, by a rare piece of chance, since it was not in the main body of records and might easily have been missed, upon something which aroused my keenest eagerness, fitting in as it did with several of the queerest phases of the affair. It was the record of a lease in 1697 of a small tract of ground to an Etienne Roulet and wife. At last the French element had appeared. That, and another deeper element of horror which the name conjured up from the darkest recesses of my weird and heterogeneous reading. And I fervently studied the platting of the locality as it had been before the cutting through and partial straightening of Back Street between 1747 and 1758. I found what I had half expected, that where the shunned house now stood, the Roulets had laid out their graveyard behind a one-story and attic cottage and that no record of any transfer of graves existed. The document, indeed, ended in much confusion, and I was forced to ransack both the Rhode Island Historical Society and Shepley Library before I could find a local door which the name of Etienne Roulet would unlock. In the end I did find something, something of such vague but monstrous import that I set about at once to examine the cellar of the shunned house itself with a new and excited minuteness. The Roulets, it seemed, had come in 1696 from East Greenwich, down the west shore of the Narragansett Bay. They were Huguenots from Caudet, and had encountered much opposition before the Providence selectmen allowed them to settle in the town. Unpopularity had dogged them in East Greenwich, whither they had come in 1686, after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. The rumor said that the cause of dislike extended beyond mere racial and national prejudice, or the land disputes which involve other French settlers with the English in rivalries which not even Governor Andros could quell. But their ardent Protestantism, too ardent some whispered, and their evident distress when virtually driven from the village down the bay had moved the sympathy of the town fathers. Here the strangers had been granted a haven and the swarthy Etienne Roulet, less apt at agriculture than at reading queer books and drawing queer diagrams, was given a clerical post in the warehouse at Pardon Tillinghast's Wharf, far south in Town Street. There had, however, been a riot of some sort later on, perhaps forty years later, after old Roulet's death, and no one seems to hear of the family after that. For a century and more it appeared the Roulets had been well remembered and frequently discussed as vivid incidents in the quiet life of a New England seaport. 
Etienne's son, Paul, a surly fellow whose erratic conduct had probably provoked the riot which wiped out the family, was particularly a source of speculation. And though Providence never shared the witchcraft panics of her Puritan neighbors, it was freely intimated by old wives that his prayers were neither uttered at the proper time nor directed toward the proper object. All this had undoubtedly formed the basis of the legend known by old Maria Robbins. What relation it had to the French ravings of Rhody Harris and other inhabitants of the shunned house, imagination or future discovery alone could determine. I wondered how many of those who had known the legends realized that additional link with the terrible which my wider reading had given me. That ominous item in the annals of morbid horror which tells of the creature Jacques Roulet of Caudet, who in 1598 was condemned to death as a demoniac, but afterwards saved from the stake by the Paris Parliament and shut in a madhouse. He had been found covered with blood and shreds of flesh in a wood shortly after the killing and rending of a boy by a pair of wolves. One wolf was seen to lope away unhurt. Surely a pretty hearthside tale, with a queer significance as to name and place, but I decided that the Providence gossips could not have generally known of it. Had they known, the coincidence of names would have brought some drastic and frightened action. Indeed, might not its limited whispering have precipitated the final riot which erased the roulets from the town? I now visited the accursed place with increased frequency studying the unwholesome vegetation of the garden, examining all the walls of the building, and poring over every inch of the earthen cellar floor. Finally, with Carrington Harris's permission, I fitted a key to the disgust door opening from the cellar directly upon Benefit Street, preferring to have a more immediate access to the outside world than the dark stairs, ground-floor hall, and front door could give. There, where morbidity lurked most thickly, I searched and poked during long afternoons when the sunlight filtered in through the cobwebbed above-ground windows, and a sense of security glowed from the unlocked door which placed me only a few feet from the placid sidewalk outside. Nothing new rewarded my efforts. Only the same depressing mustiness and faint suggestions of noxious odors and nitreous outlines on the floor and I fancy that many pedestrians must have watched me curiously through the broken panes. At length, upon a suggestion of my uncle's, I decided to try the spot nocturnally, and one stormy midnight ran the beams of an electric torch over the moldy floor with its uncanny shapes and distorted half-phosphorescent fungi. Above the anthropomorphic patch of mold by the fireplace it rose a subtle, sickish, almost luminous vapor which, as it hung trembling in the dampness, seemed to develop vague and shocking suggestions of form, gradually trailing off into nebulous decay and passing up into the blackness of the great chimney with a fetter in its wake. It was truly horrible, and the more so to me because of what I knew of the spot. Refusing to flee, I watched it fade, and as I watched I felt that it was in turn watching me greedily with eyes more imaginable than visible. When I told my uncle about it, he was greatly aroused, and after a tense hour of reflection arrived at a definite and drastic decision. Weighing in his mind the importance of the matter and the significance of our relation to it, he insisted that we both test, and if possible destroy, the horror of the house by a joint night or nights of aggressive vigil in that musty and fungus-cursed cellar.
Chapter 4 On Wednesday, June 25, 1919, after a proper notification of Carrington Harris, which did not include surmises as to what we expected to find, my uncle and I conveyed to the shunned house two camp chairs and a folding camp cot, together with some scientific mechanism of greater weight and intricacy. These we placed in the cellar during the day, screening the windows with paper and planning to return in the evening for our first vigil. We had locked the door from the cellar to the ground floor, and, having a key to the outside cellar door, were prepared to leave our expensive and delicate apparatus, which we had obtained secretly and at great cost, as many days as our vigils might be protracted. It was our design to sit up together till very late, and then watch singly till dawn in two-hour stretches, myself first and then my companion, the inactive member resting on the cot. The natural leadership with which my uncle procured the instruments from the laboratories of Brown University and the Cranston Street Armory, and instinctively assumed direction of our venture, was a marvelous commentary on the potential vitality and resilience of a man of eighty-one. Elihu Whipple had lived according to the hygienic laws he had preached as a physician, and but for what happened later would be here in full vigor today. Only two persons suspected what did happen, Carrington Harris and myself. I had to tell Harris, because he owned the house and deserved to know what had gone out of it. Then, too, we had spoken to him in advance of our quest, and I felt after my uncle's going that he would understand and assist me in some vitally necessary public explanations. He turned very pale, but agreed to help me, and decided that it would now be safe to rent the house. To declare that we were not nervous on that rainy night of watching would be an exaggeration both gross and ridiculous. We were not, as I have said, in any sense childishly superstitious, but scientific study and reflection had taught us that the known universe of three dimensions embraces the merest fraction of the whole cosmos of substance and energy. In this case, an overwhelming preponderance of evidence from numerous authentic sources pointed to the tenacious existence of certain forces of great power and, so far as the human point of view is concerned, exceptional malignancy. To say that we actually believed in vampires or werewolves would be a carelessly inclusive statement. Rather must it be said that we were not prepared to deny the possibility of certain unfamiliar and unclassified modifications of vital force and attenuated matter, existing very infrequently in three-dimensional space because of its more intimate connection with other spatial units, yet close enough to the boundary of our own to furnish us occasional manifestations which we, for lack of a proper vantage point, may never hope to understand. In short, it seemed to my uncle and me that an incontrovertible array of facts pointed to some lingering influence in the shunned house, traceable to one or another of the ill-favored French settlers of two centuries before, and still operative through rare and unknown laws of atomic and electronic motion. That the Roulet had possessed an abnormal affinity for outer circles of entity, dark spheres which for normal folk hold only repulsion and terror, their recorded history seemed to prove. Had not, then, the riots of those bygone seventeen-thirties set moving certain kinetic patterns in the morbid brain of one or more of them, notably the sinister Paul Roulet, 
which obscurely survived the bodies murdered and burned by the mob, and continued to function in some multiple-dimensioned space along the original lines of force determined by a frantic hatred of the encroaching community. Such a thing was surely not a physical or biochemical impossibility in the light of a newer science which includes the theories of relativity and intra-atomic action. One might easily imagine an alien nucleus of substance or energy, formless or otherwise, kept alive by imperceptible or immaterial subtractions from the life-force or bodily tissue and fluids of other and more palpably living things into which it penetrates and with whose fabric it sometimes completely merges itself. It might be actively hostile, or it might be dictated merely by blind motives of self-preservation. In any case, such a monster must of necessity be in our scheme of things an anomaly and an intruder, whose expertation forms a primary duty with every man not an enemy to the world's life, health, and sanity. What baffled us was our utter ignorance of the aspect in which we might encounter the thing. No sane person had ever seen it, and few had ever felt it definitely. It might be pure energy, a form ethereal and outside the realm of substance, or it might be partly material, some unknown and equivocal mass of plasticity capable of changing at will to nebulous approximations of the solid, liquid, and gaseous, or tenuously unparticled states. The anthropomorphic patch of mold on the floor, the form of the yellowish vapor, and the curvature of the tree-roots in some of the old tales all argued at least a remote and reminiscent connection with the human shape. But how representative or permanent that similarity might be, none could say with any kind of certainty. We had devised two weapons to fight it. A large and specially fitted crook's tube, operated by powerful storage batteries and provided with peculiar screens and reflectors, in case it proved intangible and opposable only by vigorously destructive ether radiations. And a pair of military flamethrowers of the sort used in the World War in case it proved partly material and susceptible of mechanical destruction. For, like the superstitious Exeter rustics, we were prepared to burn the thing's heart out, if heart existed to burn. All this aggressive mechanism we set in the cellar in positions carefully arranged with reference to the cot and chairs and to the spot before the fireplace where the mold had taken strange shapes. That suggestive patch, by the way, was only faintly visible when we placed our furniture and instruments, and when we returned that evening for the actual vigil. For a moment I half doubted that I had ever seen it in the more definitely limbed form, but then I thought of the legends. Our cellar vigil began at 10 p.m., daylight savings time, and as it continued we found no promise of pertinent developments. A weak filtered glow from the rain-harassed street lamps outside, and a feeble phosphorescence from the detestable fungi within, showed the dripping stone of the walls from which all traces of whitewash had vanished. The dank, fetid, and mildew-tainted hard-earth floor with its obscene fungi, the rotting remains of what had been stools, chairs, and tables, and other more shapeless furniture, the heavy planks and massive beams of the ground floor overhead the decrepit plank floor leading to bins and chambers beneath other parts of the house, the crumbling stone staircase with ruined wooden handrail, and the crude and cavernous fireplace of blackened brick where rusted iron fragments revealed the past presence of hooks, andirons, spit, crane, and a door to the Dutch oven. 
these things and our austere cot and camp chairs, and the heavy and intricate destructive machinery we had brought. We had, as in my own former explorations, left the door to the street unlocked, so that a direct and practical path of escape might lie open in case of manifestations beyond our power to deal with. It was our idea that our continued nocturnal presence would call forth whatever malign entity lurked there, and that, being prepared, we could dispose of the thing with one or the other of our provided means as soon as we had recognized and observed it sufficiently. How long it might require to evoke and extinguish the thing, we had no notion. It occurred to us, too, that our venture was far from safe. For in what strength the thing might appear, no one could tell. But we deemed the game worth the hazard, and embarked on it alone and unhesitatingly, conscious that the seeking of outside aid would only expose us to ridicule, and perhaps defeat our entire purpose. Such was our frame of mind as we talked far into the night till my uncle's growing drowsiness made me remind him to lie down for his two-hour sleep. Something like fear chilled me as I sat there in the small hours alone. I say alone, for one who sits by a sleeper is indeed alone, perhaps more alone than he can realize. My uncle breathed heavily, his deep inhalations and exhalations accompanied by the rain outside, and punctuated by another nerve-wracking sound of distant dripping water within for the house was repulsively damp, even in dry weather, and in this storm positively swamp-like. I studied the loose antique masonry of the walls in the fungus light and the feeble rays which stole in from the street through the screened window, and once, when the noisome atmosphere of the place seemed about to sicken me, I opened the door and looked up and down the street, feasting my eyes on familiar sights and my nostrils on wholesome air. Still, Nothing occurred to reward my watching, and I yawned repeatedly, fatigue getting the better of apprehension. Then the stirring of my uncle in his sleep attracted my notice. He had turned restlessly on the cot several times during the latter half of the first hour, but now he was breathing with unusual irregularity, occasionally heaving a sigh which held more than a few of the qualities of a choking man. I turned my electric flashlight on him and found his face averted. So, rising and crossing to the other side of the cot, I again flashed the light to see if he seemed in any pain. What I saw unnerved me most surprisingly, considering its relative triviality. It must have been merely the association of any odd circumstance with the sinister nature of our location and mission, for surely the circumstance was not in itself frightful or unnatural. It was merely that my uncle's facial expression, disturbed no doubt by the strange dreams which our situation prompted, betrayed considerable agitation, and seemed not at all characteristic of him. His habitual expression was one of kindly and well-bred calm, whereas now a variety of emotions seemed struggling within him. I think on the whole that it was this variety which chiefly disturbed me. My uncle, as he gasped and tossed in increasing perturbation, and with eyes that now had started open, seemed not one, but many men, and suggested a curious quality of alienage from himself. All at once he commenced to mutter, and I did not like the look of his mouth and teeth as he spoke. The words were at first indistinguishable, and then, with a tremendous start, I recognized something about them which filled me with icy fear, till I recalled the breath of my uncle's education, and the interminable translations he had made from anthropological and antiquarian articles in the Revue des Dumont. 
for the venerable Elihu Whipple was muttering in French. And the few phrases I could distinguish seemed connected with the darkest myths he had ever adapted from the famous Paris magazine. Suddenly a perspiration broke out on the sleeper's forehead, and he leaped abruptly up, half awake. The jumble of French changed to a cry in English, and the hoarse voice shouted excitedly, My breath! My breath! Then the awakening became complete, and with a subsidence of facial expression to the normal state, my uncle seized my hand and began to relate a dream, whose nucleus of significance I could only surmise with a kind of awe. He had, he said, floated off from a very ordinary series of dream pictures into a scene whose strangeness was related to nothing he had ever read. It was out of this world, and yet not of it, a shadowy geometrical confusion in which could be seen elements of familiar things in most unfamiliar and perturbing combinations. There was a suggestion of queerly disordered pictures, superimposed one upon the other an arrangement in which the essentials of time as well as of space seemed dissolved and mixed in the most illogical fashion. In this kaleidoscopic vortex of phantasmal images were occasional snapshots, if one might use the term, of singular clearness but unaccountable heterogeneity. Once my uncle thought he lay in a carelessly dug open pit, with a crowd of angry faces framed by straggling locks and three-cornered hats frowning down on him. Again he seemed to be in the interior of a house, an old house apparently, but the details and inhabitants were constantly changing, and he could never be certain of the faces or the furniture, or even of the room itself, since doors and windows seemed in just as great a state of flux as the presumably more mobile objects. It was queer, damnably queer, and my uncle spoke almost sheepishly as if half expecting not to be believed when he declared that of the strange faces many had unmistakably borne the features of the Harris family. And all the while there was a personal sensation of choking, as if some pervasive presence had spread itself through his body and sought to possess itself of his vital processes. I shuddered at the thought of those vital processes, worn as they were by eighty-one years of continuous functioning, in conflict with unknown forces of which the youngest and strongest system might well be afraid, but in another moment reflected that dreams are only dreams, and that these uncomfortable visions could be, at most, no more than my uncle's reaction to the investigations and expectations which had lately filled our minds to the exclusion of all else. Conversation also soon tended to dispel my sense of strangeness, and in time I yielded to my yawns and took my turn at slumber. My uncle seemed now very wakeful, and welcomed his period of watching even though the nightmare had aroused him far ahead of his allotted two hours. Sleep seized me quickly, and I was at once haunted with dreams of the most disturbing kind. I felt in my visions a cosmic and abysmal loneliness, with hostility surging from all sides upon some prison where I lay confined. I seemed bound and gagged and taunted by the echoing yells of distant multitudes who thirsted for my blood. My uncle's face came to me with less pleasant association than in waking hours, and I recall many futile struggles and attempts to scream. It was not a pleasant sleep, and for a second I was not sorry for the echoing shriek which clove through the barriers of dream and flung me to a sharp and startled awakeness, in which every actual object before my eyes stood out with more than natural clearness and reality. CHAPTER Five. 
I had been lying with my face away from my uncle's chair, so that in this sudden flash of awakening I saw only the door to the street, the window, and the wall and floor and ceiling toward the north of the room, all photographed with morbid vividness on my brain, in a light brighter than the glow of the fungi or the rays from the street outside. It was not a strong or even a fairly strong light, certainly not nearly strong enough to read an average book by. But it cast a shadow of myself and the cot on the floor, and had a yellowish penetrating force that hinted at things more potent than luminosity. This I perceived with unhealthy sharpness, despite the fact that two of my other senses were violently assailed. For on my ears rang the reverberations of that shocking scream, while my nostrils revolted at the stench which filled the place. My mind, as alert as my senses, recognized the gravely unusual, and almost automatically I leaped up and turned about to grasp the destructive instruments which we had left trained on the moldy spot before the fireplace. As I turned, I dreaded what I was to see, for the scream had been in my uncle's voice, and I knew not against what menace I should have to defend him and myself. Yet, after all, the sight was worse than I had dreaded. There are horrors beyond horrors, and this was one of those nuclei of all dreamable hideousness which the cosmos saves to blast an accursed and unhappy few. Out of the fungus-ridden earth steamed up a vaporous corpse-light, yellow and diseased, which bubbled and lapped to a gigantic height in vague outlines, half-human and half-monstrous, through which I could see the chimney and fireplace beyond. It was all eyes, wolfish and mocking and the rugose insect-like head dissolved at the top to a thin stream of mist which curled putridly about and finally vanished up the chimney. I say that I saw this thing, but it is only in conscious retrospection that I ever definitely traced its damnable approach to form. At the time it was to me only a seething, dimly phosphorescent cloud of fungus loathsomeness enveloping and dissolving to an abhorrent plasticity the one object on which all my attention was focused. That object was my uncle, the venerable Elihu Whipple, who, with blackening and decaying features, leered and gibbered at me, and reached out dripping claws to rend me in the fury which this horror had brought. It was a sense of routine which kept me from going mad. I had drilled myself in preparation for the crucial moment, and blind training saved me. Recognizing the bubbling evil as no substance reachable by matter or material chemistry, and therefore ignoring the flame-thrower which loomed on my left, I threw on the current of the crook's tube apparatus and focused toward that scene of immortal blasphemousness the strongest ether radiations which man's art can arouse from the spaces and fluids of nature. There was a bluish haze and a frenzied sputtering, and the yellowish phosphorescence grew dimmer to my eyes. But I saw the dimness was only that of contrast, and that the waves from the machine had no effect whatsoever. Then, in the midst of that demoniac spectacle, I saw fresh horror which brought cries to my lips and sent me fumbling and staggering toward that unlocked door to the quiet street, careless of what abnormal terrors I loosed upon the world, or what thoughts or judgments of men I brought down upon my head. In that dim blend of blue and yellow the form of my uncle had commenced a nauseous liquefaction, whose essence excludes all description, and in which there played across his vanishing face such changes of identity as only madness can conceive. He was at once a devil and a multitude, a charnel-house and a pageant, 
lit by the mixed and uncertain beams that gelatinous face assumed a dozen, a, a score, a hundred aspects, grinning as it sank to the ground on a body that melted like tallow, in the caricatured likeness of legion strange and yet not strange. I saw the features of the Harris line, masculine and feminine, adult and infantile, and other features, old and young, coarse and refined, familiar and unfamiliar. For a second there flashed a degraded counterfeit of a miniature of poor mad Roby Harris that I had seen in the School of Design Museum, and another time I thought I caught the raw-boned image of Mercy Dexter as I recalled her from a painting in Carrington Harris's house. It was frightful beyond conception. Toward the last, when a curious blend of servant and baby visages flickered close to the fungus floor where a pool of greenish grease was spreading, it seemed as though the shifting features fought against themselves and strove to form contours like those of my uncle's kindly face. I liked to think that he existed at that moment, and that he tried to bid me farewell. It seems to me I hiccupped a farewell from my own parched throat as I lurched out into the street a thin stream of grease following me through the door to the rain-drenched sidewalk. The rest is shadowy and monstrous. There was no one in the soaking street, and in all the world there was no one I dared tell. I walked aimlessly south past College Hill and the Athenaeum down Hopkins Street and over the bridge to the business section, where tall buildings seemed to guard me as modern material things guard the world from ancient and unwholesome wonder. Then gray dawn unfolded wetly from the east, silhouetting the archaic hill and its venerable steeples, and beckoning me to the place where my terrible work was still unfinished. And in the end I went, wet, hatless, and dazed in the morning light, and entered that awful door in Benefit Street where I had left the jar, and which still swung cryptically in full sight of the early householders to whom I dared not speak. The grease was gone, for the moldy floor was porous, and in front of the fireplace was no vestige of the giant doubled-up form traced in nitre. I looked at the cot, the chairs, the instruments, my neglected hat, and the yellowed straw hat of my uncle. Dazedness was uppermost, and I could scarcely recall what was dream and what was reality. Then thought trickled back, and I knew that I had witnessed things more horrible than I had dreamed. Sitting down, I tried to conjecture as nearly as sanity would let me just what happened, and how I might end the horror, if indeed it had been real. Matter, it seemed, not to be, nor ether, nor anything else conceivable by mortal mind. What, then, but some exotic emanation, some vampirish vapor such as Exeter rustics tell of as lurking over certain churchyards? This, I felt, was the clue and again I looked at the floor before the fireplace where the mold and nitre had taken strange forms. In ten minutes my mind was made up, and taking my hat I set out for home, where I bathed, ate, and gave by telephone an order for a pickaxe, a spade, a military gas mask, and six carboys of sulfuric acid, all to be delivered the next morning at the cellar door of the shunned house in Benefit Street. After that I tried to sleep, and failing, passed the hours in reading and in the composition of inane verses to counteract my mood. At eleven a.m. the next day I commenced digging. It was sunny weather, and I was glad of that. I was still alone, for as much as I feared the unknown horror I sought, there was more fear in the thought of telling anybody. Later I told Harris, 
only through sheer necessity and because he had heard odd tales from old people which disposed him ever so little toward belief. As I turned up the stinking black earth in front of the fireplace, my spade causing a viscous yellow ichor to ooze from the white fungi which it severed, I trembled at the dubious thoughts of what I might uncover. Some secrets of inner earth are not good for mankind, and this seemed to me one of them. My hand shook perceptibly, but still I delved, after a while standing in the large hole I had made. With the deepening of the hole, which was about six feet square, the evil smell increased, and I lost all doubt of my eminent contact with the hellish thing whose emanations had cursed the house for over a century and a half. I wondered what it would look like, what its form and substance would be, and how big it might have waxed through long ages of life-sucking. At length I climbed out of the hole and dispersed the heaped-up dirt, then arranging the great carboys of acid around the near two sides, so that when necessary I might empty them all down the aperture in quick succession. After that I dumped earth only along the other two sides, working more slowly and donning my gas mask as the smell grew. I was nearly unnerved at my proximity to a nameless thing at the bottom of a pit. Suddenly my spade struck something softer than earth. I shuddered and made a motion as if to climb out of the hole which was now as deep as my neck. Then courage returned, and I scraped away more dirt in the light of the electric torch I had provided. The surface I uncovered was fishy and glassy, a kind of semi-putrid congealed jelly with suggestions of translucency. I scraped further and saw that it had form. There was a rift where a part of the substance was folded over. The exposed area was huge and roughly cylindrical, like a mammoth, soft, blue-white stovepipe, doubled in two, its largest part some two feet in diameter. Still more I scraped, and then abruptly I leaped out of the hole and away from the filthy thing, frantically unstopping and tilting the heavy carboys and precipitating their corrosive contents one after another down that charnel gulf and upon the unthinkable abnormality whose titan elbow I had seen. The blinding maelstrom of greenish-yellow vapor which surged tempestuously up from that hole as the floods of acid descended will never leave my memory. All along the hill people tell of the yellow day, when virulent and horrible fumes arose from the factory waste dumped in the Providence River. But I know how mistaken they are as to the source. They tell, too, of the hideous roar which, at the same time, came from some disordered water pipe or gas main underground, but again I could correct them if I dared. It was unspeakably shocking, and I do not see how I lived through it. I did faint after emptying the fourth carboy, which I had to handle after the fumes had begun to penetrate my mask, but when I recovered I saw that the hole was emitting no fresh vapors. The two remaining carboys I emptied down without particular result, and after a time I felt it safe to shovel the earth back into the pit. It was twilight before I was done, but fear had gone out of the place. The dampness was less fetid, and all the strange fungi had withered to a kind of harmless grayish powder which blew ash-like along the floor. One of earth's nethermost terrors had perished forever and if there be a hell, it had received at last the demon soul of an unhallowed thing. And as I patted down the last spadeful of mold, I shed the first of the many tears with which I have paid unaffected tribute to my beloved uncle's memory. 
The next spring, no more pale grass and strange weeds came up in the shunned house's terraced garden, and shortly afterward Carrington Harris rented the place. It is still spectral, but its strangeness fascinates me, and I shall find mixed with relief a queer regret when it is torn down to make way for a tawdry shop or vulgar apartment building. The barren old trees in the yard have begun to bear small sweet apples, and last year the birds nested in the gnarled boughs. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Evan. Hi, I'm Connor. Hi, I'm Jason. We're going to talk about The Shunned House by H.P. Lovecraft. This was first published, apparently, in a book in 1928. Uh, apparently, there's very few copies of that. I have the Weird Tales version from uh, October 1937. Uh, and um, I assume that's the one you read it from. Jason, was that correct? Or did you? Uh, I read, I just read the version? S.T. Joshi. Uh, S.T. Joshi, his, his is probably more accurate. Maybe there's a typo or two in here. Well, it wasn't published till after. It wasn't published in Weird Tales till after his death. Yeah, it even says posthumous story of immense power. That happened a lot, though. Like, you know, he wouldn't resubmit stuff, and then they're like, "Damn it, so much attention! Can't we get more?" And there's like tons more, right? Um, I, in mm. fact, in fact, I was just trying to declare that story um, for um, Connor called "The Black Stranger." Um, which is Robert E. Howard's story, and it says in the issue it came out in, which came out in 1950, it's been only 15 years since Robert E. Howard's death. And I'm like, holy fuck, 15 years. That's like, what, six times as long since, since then to now, and it's still stuck under Elsprague de Camp's public domain, uh, copyright, kind of. Mm. It's so fucked up. <laughs> yeah. In a pretty gray area. Yeah, uh, you'll you'll be fine because it's on Gutenberg Australia. Absolutely, I, mm. I just I I I I need to have all three versions side by side to look. But luckily, we don't have that problem with Mister H.P. Lovecraft. I listened to Evans' um, podcast about it, um, mm -hmm. and uh, I found a few interesting things. I, I I guess that's the second time listening through to it. But uh, I was mentioning before we started that. Uh, Wayne June's version, read for um, Audio Realms, I think it was, was my first encounter of the story. And it, it's super creepy, and he's the best narrator for this. Um, but um, it really struck me, reading it for the fifth or sixth time, um, why is Poe in this? Because uh, <laughs> Lovecraft just is really into Poe, he and he wants is. to talk about the Athenaeum and, um, he absolutely is. and him in Providence. He uh, it, it, and and he he definitely worked that this out right that Poe walked by the street to get to a lady who who he was wooing and and he definitely probably didn't notice this house right yeah <laughs> and hence the opening from the great from even the greatest of horrors irony is seldom absent but um I think there's more to it than just that because it, it never comes back in the story right it's just the opening. Um, but if mm. you actually look at what's happening structurally in this story, there's some very funny stuff. Uh, ironic, you might even say. For example, um, think about this. Uh, one of Poe's most famous stories, uh, famous stories is set in a house in which somebody buries somebody, uh, beneath the floorboards. Right? Mm hmm. Um, and in the story we get in here, uh, Poe is, 
not interested in the house at all. Rather, he's interested in a lady in a house down the street, <laughs> right? And then yeah, we well, have two narrators, or two main characters in this story, both of whom are bachelors and who are obsessed with a house and not a lady in a house down the street. Yeah, that's true. Right? Like, um, and, and also, get this, um, what happens to the uncle? He dies. Uh-huh. Uh, actually, technically, he's killed. Technically, me homicided by his nephew, who then doesn't tell us where the body went, does he? Uh, he has uh, six carboys of acid, and we you know, we're on his his team. But this is actually very much a structurally. It's very much like the Telltale Heart. It's, it's pretty ambiguous. Right? What actually happens. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, I, I, I think that this is like, uh, not him saying, ha 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 ha, I'm doing Poe exactly. But he actually does compare this story to Poe and says, this is stronger or equal to anything Poe had ever written, which is a pretty bold claim. And I don't think one that, uh, Lovecraft would make, but rather the narrator is making. <laughs> mm. Right. Well, fr- from his perspective, if he had actually experienced that, you would definitely be thinking this is tops anything I've ever read in a book. Yeah. In terms yeah. of weirdness and horror, it's pretty good. I think it's one of his more like underrated stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I always buy like uh, collections of Lovecraft short stories whenever I see them. Have a whole bunch of old paperbacks. I have that problem look- too. Yeah, and but I looked through all the ones I had to try and find a physical copy of this story just to read it, mm-hmm. and I realized it's this isn't in any of them. Wow, it's not. Um, even though I think it's a pretty strong story, it's uh, it's just not that well known about. It's not the first story that ever comes. It's to mind. It's a little longer than the you know you could pack six or seven stories, uh, short stories. Well, maybe not six or seven, four, four or five short short stories into the space that this one would take up, and that might make you know, purchasing more interesting, but a lot of the story is the build up, And then we finally get this, this back end that is like, uh, the release of the tension of the buildup, because a lot of it is, it's, it's very genealogical and hence, um, kind of dull, <laughs> but mm. that's all necessary because that's the detective work they're doing. It's kind of, I actually found the buildup to be kind of cool. Um, and I think more so now that I'm, now that I'm a parent, uh, mm-hmm. as of two years ago, because um, to be honest, there's all these child deaths, mm-hmm. and all in the all of these, um, you know, every uh, three three out of the four children die, and then that one one child, uh, yeah, eventually one child, the son survives, but uh, there's all this, you know, everyone dies, everyone goes insane, and uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's, I found it, you know, I it like. He's able to pack uh, these very tragic and emotional events away in these in these dry uh, synopses, mm-hmm. but in fact, there's all kinds of horrible stuff happening. He just doesn't. He's just not the type of writer who would draw draws it out with a lot of melodrama mm-hmm. and uh, conversations. You know. Mm-hmm. It, I also like that stuff. I think it's some of his best kind of deep dives into the history of of a place and a, and a character. And I, I think one thing that Lovecraft was doing a lot at this point in his career, like in uh what's that? He, the story, he, mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, 
other ones like that, especially his, this is a little bit after he was in New York, I think. I don't know when it was written. Uh, yeah, this was, it's 28. Yeah, this was, was right after published. he came back from New York. Yeah. yeah. So it's in that, that period. So he's another good example of this, how he Lovecraft will use architecture uh, to kind of dig into the history of places. Mm-hmm. Right, how you're kind of time traveling as you're walking through communities and you look at the architecture. And you can imagine Lovecraft always doing this mm-hmm. in his own life whenever he would do his walking tours of Providence or the countryside. You'd find, oh, this this house was built in this century. Kind of, he is able to kind of go through time, and that's what these characters do because you have the the genealogy, you have the family history of, of what's that guy's name, Lay, right? Etienne Lay, yeah, and then you have. Which I think that's some of the best stuff in the story. Uh, and then then you get the kind of the history of the house and the ownership of the house. And then this also gets you windows into kind of this working class experience of horror, right? Where they're, you know, the, like the workers who experience it and gossip about it and tell stories about it. This kind of uh, the way knowledge is communicated over time through these kind of networks of just the great vine telegraph sort of mm-hmm. uh, that's something Lovecraft was really, really interested into as well. And then you have the architecture of the house as part of this time travel too. I, I think that's great because most of this story is set in the past. Mm-hmm. It's in not, I don't find it dull at all. Actually. I think it's no, I, 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 I think yeah, the, I'm not saying it's dull. I'm saying dull, this is the explanation for why it isn't. Uh, uh, so like there's so many echoes of other stories in this that it's, it's uh, hard to figure which ones are not included. <laughs> so, yeah. like, for example, the yeah. the very end is, uh, you know, like, statement around a Carter in a sense, right? Um, there's a hole. <laughs> um, it's also the picture, not the picture in the house, the um, lurking fear uh, with the, the mantelpiece even coming in, you know, the shadow on the mantelpiece. Uh, two guys sleeping in a house um, with disturbing nightmare dreams. Um, there's uh, there's a lot of case of Charles Dexter Ward. Oh, and uh, the color of the space. Oh yeah, definitely the color of the space. Right? Yeah. So um, yeah, the body horror. Oh yeah, color And what's funny is I was thinking about how they're related. They're actually kind of inverted. So color out of space uh, is a material that goes into uh, living things and sort of pumps it up, <laughs> um, but makes it bad. And this is mm-hmm. a, uh, removing something from living things and making it worse, right? So the grass is like roomy, <laughs> which is a word you normally associate with eyes, right? Um, and the, uh, sickly and, you know, uh, so th- there is a disgusting factor in both p- the plants of, uh, Colorado space and in here. But they're kind of reversed. One's been vampirized and the other's been uh, injected with um, tainted materials. I um, I see a connection here to Lovecraft's other, like, sort of vaguely tradition, traditional ghost stories, like mm-hmm. The Unnameable and He. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, I mean, Lovecraft draws, does crazy ghosts. And it's I think it's a weird... Um, 
I mean, it's interesting that none of his ghosts have been like canonized in like role-playing games or anything, right? But still, he he has this crazy imagination for these extremely physical ghosts, mm-hmm. right? Which are made of vital quote vital force and attenuated matter, oh, yeah. and they're all kind of shape. They're all kind in all these three these stories. They're all kind of shapeless blobs, essentially. They're all kind of like. They're all totally non-humanoid, well, vaguely humanoid in this case, shapeless ghost monsters. Uh, I I want I want to draw attention to that. So what what is we see an elbow, right? <laughs> um, and it's uh, he says it's two free two feet in diameter. So I got some pecs. <laughs> sorry, some um, biceps. <laughs> they ain't two feet in diameter. I got to tell you. Right. So, uh, whoever, whatever roulette has been buried under there, he seems to have been growing <laughs> over mm. time. Right. So, uh, a first pass, you know, not paying that close attention, you might think that they buried a, a titan, right? Because he says titan, uh, titan elbow or something. Right. And I've seen, um, illustrations that have, you know, people standing with a bunch of six carboys nearby. Uh, looking into the pit and going, oh my god, right as right before they start pouring the stuff in. Uh, uh, but I also noticed like some of them don't know what uh, bones are inside of arms. <laughs> like <laughs> they think there's two uh, bones in the upper part of the arm where you know there isn't. And so I think that Lovecraft knows exactly what's under there, but we only get to see the elbow, right? Um, and. Um, it's very also careful, I think, in the, it's, it's very much like a research story. So we, first we think it's, oh, it's the Indian graveyard. Or no, it's the town graveyard. No, it's the Indian graveyard. No, they moved all those bodies, right? And no, it's, it's the Roulet graveyard that nobody knew about. Oh. And through the visions of Eli, oh, is it Eli? Eli? Elihu? Elihu. Elihu Whipple. Yeah, Whipple. Um, we get, uh, the vision of him looking up from the bottom of a, of a pit at people with tricorn hats, um, being mad at him. <laughs> right. And then we get the double image, uh, twice in the story of, uh, people cutting hearts out, um, in order to kill vampires. Uh, and then of course this Roulet family is, uh, real werewolf story from France. Um, and these are, the de- supposed descendants of those people, right? So he knows what's under there. Uh, he's planned it all out, and that's why this story looks the way it does. But the research, uh, so where you, you think you've figured out what it is, this happens all the time in research. You think you figured out what it is, and then you brush away some more stuff, and you say, okay, that's a mistake. But look at this, right? And so we have that that going back in time over and over again with... Uh, the experience of the narrator saying, when I was a kid, we went and did this, right? Then he remembers people who knew about the house. Then he finds out his uncle's really into it, and he looks at his research. Then they go to the house and they do the thing. But this whole story is also one of these going back, going backs in time. And that's why yeah. partway through the story, Evan was confused in his podcast as the house was okay. That's because he's already tipped his hand. Right earlier in the story, and I, I think that archaeological sort of um, digging is actually really fun, and that's why it takes so long to get there as well. But it's all part of that uh, atmosphere building, so that we get that final, very um, World War One 
uh, exhumation of bodies buried. Yeah, he he actually wrote a um, little essay about how he does this, right? That hmm. nested, like he said, he would write out, he'd start the story, and he'd write out the events chronologically, mm-hmm. like a timeline. This mm-hmm. is the things that happened. And then he would start nesting them inside each other, which you see in this story. It kind of mm-hmm. starts out, there's this house. When I was a kid, I saw this. Then there were these people, the Carringtons or whoever. And then before that, there was the Roulets. And he keeps going back further and further in, like, uh, you know, Russian nesting dolls. Mm-hmm. And that's why I thought uh, at one point, Car- even though I'd read the story before, I thought Carrington, um, he brought something back, as Evan was sort of thinking about, right? He brought something back from from wherever he was uh, doing trading with, and it, he buried in the basement like a treasure. But no, that's not what happened, right? He had nothing to do mm-hmm. with it. He just bought the land. I wonder if, like, Roulet is... Because he is, there's something weird in his history, right? We oh, don't quite yeah. know. No, we that. know. Like, it, the, werewolf, right? Yeah. So there, there was a Jacques Roulet, who's a historical, you know, mythological figure, who was a werewolf put on trial, and it's mentioned in here, right? Um, put on trial in France, and then, uh, you know, it's sort of a half werewolf, half vampire, but going crazy. And but I mean, we don't know. We, we got seven, 16th century people saying he's a werewolf. Right. You know? Sure. What that really is, some madness, right? That's the right. So that's why it's more vampiric than it is like werewolf. See, Uh, this is not a werewolf story or a vampire story. It's a Lovecraft monster. He's drawn to the land. That's that was the question. (laughs) He's drawn to the land. If something predating all Ah. this, there's a deeper history here, and there Mm. and these, this character because of his corruption is drawn to the land. That Mm. might be an explanation for the. The entity. I was thinking also the you know vampires like to live in their own soil or whatever, uh, and and this is a Dracula story as well. But um, if the if the Roulet family had excavated their ancestor or family member and brought brought him over here and buried him in the in their personal cemetery, um, that that doesn't quite fit the facts either. So we we sort of got to a certain point and then. Lovecraft does what he always does, which is we must destroy uh, knowledge of uh, memory. The me- we must destroy the memory. Yeah. Um, I was re- rereading this. And I noticed something that I didn't remember from before, which is that there is the faintest suggestion of sympathy for the monster in this one mm. because they are killed. They're, they are. I mean, they're they're clearly evil wizards, but they are killed by a mob. And then there's this image from their point of view of the, all these angry. Uh, mm. Colonials, you know, killed, murdering them, and then they suggest that. Uh, I think at one point he suggests that it's unclear whether the creature is hostile or just seeking its own self-preservation. Right. Um, you know. Yep. I the um the image that we see of him in the pit looking up mm-hmm. made me think he's in the pit and he's being buried alive by right. the mob, and then perhaps if he's like a warlock or whatever, he has some sort of power. It, it occurred to me in his last moments, he may have somehow preserved himself where he has to feed on people in the house, but he can stay alive by doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the creature, we would agree, is, is alive, whatever it is. Yep. There's, um, so, uh, I'm trying to bring it up. There's a poem, uh, from the Fungi from Yagath called The Dweller, I think it's called. Uh, there it is. 
Is this the Dweller? No, this is not the best website for it. The Dweller. There it is. So it's number 31. Uh, <laughs> okay, this is not good because it just gives a... It says, the narrator enters a Dream City a, a, a version of Babylon where he sees a series of unearthed tombs opening to be released and walked out into the gale, Gate of Eternal Night. Maybe that's not the one. All right. I'll think about which one it was, but there is one where uh, there's something under the ground um, that's going to be released. Uh, um, but yeah, the fact that it, uh, there's a yellow day uh, and they blame it on the factory and the river runs yellow and there's steam and then their pipes are croaking and they say, I could tell them stories, but they won't believe me thing at the end. Um, all good stuff. Uh, so it's alive down there, but it's sort of asleep. Right. Um, yeah. Or just, um, in a half life, I suppose, I suppose undead. Yeah. It's a, it definitely Maybe. undead. Uh, but it, it seems to be growing in size as well. Right. Which is the, the why it's elbow is a Titanic elbow, but it also seems to have like, if you're a, um, if you're a vampire, you're supposed to be pale. Not only this guy pale, he's, he's translucent. <laughs> mm. Right. Which, um, but I think. Yeah. Um, hang on. I'd have to find that description, but often skin, I notice that's described that way in like older writing where like something that's very pale is described as almost translucent. Sure. Sure. That's why when you see those illustrations, you can see right through to the bones, right? Um, mm. but I love, I love the way Lovecraft reveals it. He's like, I'm digging, I'm digging. And then I hit something softer than dirt. Oh. And, and then he digs and uncovers and he's like, what's this? It looks like a, a folded, uh, stovepipe. Uh, but it's rubberier. <laughs> and then he realizes it and j- jumps out before he explains what it is, right? I love the hard turn the story takes into oh, yeah. materialistic science fiction, right? Oh, it's yeah. Like, I mean, if it was like an M.R. James story or most types of ghost stories, they might have the story of the ghost buried in the cellar. Although they probably wouldn't have such a gratuitous body count, which is sort of just, just happens, but it isn't really commented on, but it's an obscene body count of mm. dead people to die. But then in chapter four, it's like, well, there's a ghost and uh, we need a flamethrower. We need something to com- crooks crooks tube emit radiation, right? I don't even really know what a crooks yeah, what, tube is. What is a crooks tube, uh, Connor? Um, okay. So I think there's an early device it's sort of like a vacuum tube with gas inside it's like a cathode ray tube or something right yeah um but it doesn't but it's surprisingly like by modern standards what we'd think it does emit light and i believe heat radiation mm-hmm. but it's but it's not very impressive honestly well but he's in, got um, powerful batteries you forget he's got powerful batteries oh okay yeah, and yeah, special yeah. So, screens and and reflectors so it's for concentrate yeah. Basically, Connie, sort of you just gun. have to tell me that it's uh, the positron emitters from Ghostbusters. <laughs> and then that, that's almost yeah what it seems like. In their backpack cyclotrons, um, right? He's well, gonna zap him. With, I can't uh, remember yeah, what those are called, gun. but yeah, it's 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 like a backpack cyclotron, <laughs> mm. <laughs> which is awesome. And then, there, then of course, the final act where he's like, okay, well, a flamethrower doesn't work. I need to get a gas mask, a sho- shovel, and some acid. It's just, yeah, it is very a little role-playing gamey. But it's, uh, it's yeah, I really, really enjoyed rereading it. It's good stuff. Mm. Our, what, what are these called? Cyclotronic, uh, what the hell is it called? 
You mean the Ghostbusters uh, backpack? Yeah, yeah, they have a special vocabulary. Proton pack, is that what they called it? Proton yeah, pack. That's yeah, that's it. Protons. Mm-hmm. It shoots protons. But it, it's a, it's a, that's why it has that si- uh, wheel at the bottom, because it's a, like a portable cyclotron, which is like the size of, uh, you know, a football field at, at the minimum normally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it, mm. it's it's that's why it's so cool. And this is also all those shows that uh, Will likes the uh, ghost hunting shows where people go in and set up the cameras and and say, "Oh, I'm getting EM radiation." <laughs> <laughs> well, the um the short film you sent me. Oh yeah, great short uh, film. I didn't send was it to exactly that. Uh, I didn't send it to show. you, uh, Jason. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um. It was the setup was essentially like two ghost hunters, right? Yeah. And they're like, "Oh, this is a haunted house. Let's go in and set up our equipment and see what's going on." And then they encounter. It's like twelve minutes you know, long, force. and it's it's, it's a bit pretty terrific. The, it's pretty terrific. Yeah. I, it doesn't it have fun. the destruction of the um, the monster, but it does have the the uh, occupation, the possession um, of possession. The, yeah, I really, I really, I, I like the way the possession works in the story because, like, you get it in your dreams, right? Your face takes on all these other faces, which means the vampire thingy is stealing people, right? It's sort of stealing not just their vital bodily fluid at life essence, but also their memories and their experiences. Right? It's retaining them, and then they escape, and they are the ha- the haunters of the house as well yeah do you know what this whole thing reminded me of what's that um i watched this movie recently called slither from like (sighs) 2002 Mm -hmm. it reminded me of the that film's like science fiction right an alien comes to earth but it's basically a consciousness that then inhabits a person but it absorbs other people exactly like that and mm-hmm. grows and grows into this monstrous body horror Ooh. creature. And, uh, I just happened to see that recently. And then this story is sort of similar. Nice. I haven't seen um, that one. There's, yeah, I, I, James Gunn, I think. Yeah. Ooh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like him. That's a good one. Uh, and there's also a leave. If you, if you wanted to go there, there's even a little bit of a zombie aspect in that, like one sentence where it mentions that the possess- people who are sickly and dying, they, they turn glassy eyed and try to bite the, uh, oh, yeah. Patient, you know, Definitely. Then, so that if, you it, know. that's the vampire aspect, the werewolf aspect, yeah. right? Yeah. Vampire, werewolf, zombie, whatever. Yep. Um, mm. I'm still looking. This is, yep, go for it. If, if you do take this as a, vampire story which is sort of what i've heard is described as mm-hmm. even though it's it's pretty different it's a completely different take like one of the aspects that of like that early vampire mythology which um is sort of taken to the extreme in this story is that i think originally vampires okay they'd go out and they'd kind of um like eat people or suck blood or do whatever they do but then they would get really bloated in their coffins and then when people would open the coffin they'd see that and be like oh it's a vampire mm-hmm. and obviously like in reality it was probably just a corpse being bloated um from decomposing or whatever but if you think about like this mm-hmm. uh creature in this one it's like it it's doing that it's absorbing some life force and it just keeps on getting bigger and bigger right um continuously uh and it's like what if that aspect of 
vampires of getting bloated from feeding on life force was just taken to the extreme and continued. Yeah, that's that's why I love that it's a giant, right? It's getting bigger and bigger. Mm. And like if they hadn't if they hadn't uh, stopped it by pouring acid all over it, right? Uh burning it all up, uh deleting it essentially, it could have woken up. <laughs> and then it would have been yeah. uh Clark Ashton Smith's story. <laughs> <laughs> that one of that giant yeah. Frankenstein monster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah. all right. I found it. It's, uh, called Antarctos. Um, at somebody's labeled it in Weird Tales number four in the Fungi from Yogas cycle, but it's not. I think it's something else. Anyways, here it is. Um, deep in my dream, the great bird whispered queerly of the black cone amid the polar waste, pushing above the ice sheet lone and dreary, drearily by storm crazed eons battered and defaced. Hither no living earth shapes take their courses, and only pale auroras and faint suns glow on that pitted rock whose primal sources are guessed at dimly by the Elder Ones. If men should glimpse it, they would merely wonder what tricky mound of nature's build they spied, but the bird told of vaster parts that under mile-deep ice shroud cr- shroud that under the mile-deep ice shroud crouched and brood and bide, God helped a dreamer whose mad visions show those dead eyes set in crystal gulfs below. So there's something frozen under the ice that's going to come out, right? That's Mountains of Madness. Yes, yes, that's a very Mountains of Madness. But I actually have one here. This is one I think about a lot, um, and I use it a lot at school. I've probably used it like six or seven times over the years. Um, this is called The House. You guys know this one? It's uh, published in uh, 1920 originally and then in Weird Tales in uh, March 48. Uh, this is really cool. Uh, Tis a grove circle dwelling set close to a hill where the branches are telling strange legends of ill. Over timbers so old that they breathe of the dead, crawl the vines green and cold by strange nourishment fed. And no man knows the juices they suck from the depths of their dank, slimy bed. In the gardens are growing tall blossoms and fair, each pallid bloom throwing perfume on the air. But the afternoon sun with its red slanting rays makes the picture loom done on the curious gaze. And above the sweet scent of the blossoms rise odors of numberless days. The rank grasses are waving on terrace and lawn. Dim memories are dim memories saving of things that have gone. The stones of the walks are encrusted and wet. And a strange spirit stalks when the red sun has set. And the soul of the watcher is filled with faint pictures he fain would forget. It was in the hot June time I stood by that scene, when the gold rays of noontime beat bright on the green, but I shivered with cold, groping feebly, feebly for light as the picture unrolled, and my age-spanning sight saw the time I had been there before, flash like fulgree out of the night. Um, fulgree is lightning. Um, what's so great about this illustration uh, that goes with it is actually has uh the strange nourishment fed showing what what the what is feeding the plants uh that are growing the ivy that's growing all over the house and it's a coffin <laughs> with a you know a dead arm hanging out of it so he's definitely thinking like uh layers right and uh when my mom is reading this to me she was saying like it's it's sort of it's spirals sort of up 
the house and then it sort of spirals down the house. And then obviously, uh, it goes even deeper. It goes beneath the first, uh, the ground floor. And uh, is there five chapters? Cause I was thinking like each one of them is kind of like a layer, right? Yeah, I think it's five. Yeah. So we've got the, the three layers of the house where most of the occupation happens, right? The kitchen is in the basement, which is a traditional place for, for, uh, servants to cook the food. Um, but that's also where the servants, uh, are, you know, going crazy and the babies being born upstairs are, are being reached, but neighboring houses are never affected. It's only this house. So it's like the, those, uh, fungus, uh, are like the reaching out. <laughs> almost and like today if if you were saying let's move into this house uh we'd say oh this is all black uh black mold right that's fucking up people's <laughs> lungs right and we'd say you know you need to tear it tear it apart and clean it and that's exactly what they do right they yeah it kind of is black mold it's just like a fungus vampire living out of the floor and it, it, it exhales gas and the gas kills you or yeah. Those Melts mushrooms, you, those mushrooms are slime. putting out their, um, their, uh, spores, which are bad for your lungs, which kill you and exacerbate what, uh, you know, and so having bad dreams or what, all that can be explained, but the, uh, you know, it's just a toxic house, <laughs> toxic mold, right? We explain it that way, but it, it, it's, it's really funny because it is a ghost story in a certain sense. But it's also a vampire werewolf uh titan in the basement story. It did it doesn't have um that tightness uh, of uh you know, terrible old man, which you can read it in like three pages. So we get we get the same sort of thing going on there, but it's just much tighter. And that's why you can fit five or six. And that's, I think, probably why people don't find this to be the most exciting one, even though it has some really awesome action at the end, has some good setup in the middle, and lots of fun research. Uh, good setup at the beginning, fun research in the middle. But it is, uh, it's also a happy ending, which is really odd. Right? I mean, uh, other mm. than the uncle being dead. Yeah, he gets away. He doesn't go mad. Uh, yeah, and also he gets away with murdering his uncle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he turned the what to cathode ray tube yeah. on him. They don't say what happened to the uncle's clothes. They say his like hat is lying there, but uh, they don't say if like his slime-stained mm. underwear and socks were, were lying all over <laughs> the floor. That's also cool air, right? Uh, oh, yeah. When people get, or, um, or the thing on the doorstep, uh, which also has a hat involved. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I, I there's definitely the uh, returning, recurring image of melting as mm. like the most disgusting form of decomposition in mm-hmm. Lovecraft, which also it shows up in uh, Poe. It's also Poe yeah. po based, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I love. Uh, I think I also think it's a really disgusting, great horror image. So uh, I, I just rewatched the movie Body Melt. So <laughs> oh god, <laughs> clearly just as tasteful as the front house. Wow. But um, anyways. Uh, that's my digression, but actually, I'm afraid I need to get going soon because uh, yeah. I have to. I have to run off to an uh, appointment that I couldn't uh, postpone. Um, but well, thank I'm you gonna, so much for having. Me yeah, on. I'm going to send you the schedule and uh, and suggest you look at some stuff because we have uh, a novel in there that uh, Lovecraft read, 
and um, it's by the lady who wrote the uh, the Velveteen Rabbit. <laughs> uh, that's, it's that's it's a werewolf exciting. book, in fact. Well, um, maybe we'll that's see. next week. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'll I'm check. always. It's always a pleasure to be on, and uh, it's nice to talk to you, Evan, and uh, nice yeah. to meet you, Connor. And um, please, y'all, carry on without me. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna run off. Keep uh, keep shunning that house. <laughs> sure. <All right>. Thank <laughs> you. Nice Bye. to meet you. Thank you so much. Bye. 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 Thanks. Bye. See ya. Why? One thing I yeah. I was it. I was thinking about is like like Lovecraft seems to always need something like physical. I guess you got the unnameable, but um, that that has a physical a few physicality to yeah, it. Yeah, even that has something, right? So, like Hill House, there's no there's nothing buried underneath. There's no Indian graveyard. It's just it's just an evil house. Mm. Right. I, was, I was thinking about that and, movie. And Stephen um, King kind of copies that idea all the time, right? With like the Marston House mm. or or uh, the Overlook. They're just bad places, right? And they might draw evil things to them, but it's never explained why they're that way. Like, yeah. No, I yeah, Lovecraft That's, cares because he's a, he's yeah, really into he, science, he's, right? Uh, some kind of physical thing, yeah. Yeah, it's, no, he's definitely yeah, into the science. Scientist. Whereas science, Stephen King is not a scientist at all, right? He, yeah, he he's a psych a psych psych figure. Um, well, I was thinking about that movie Poltergeist a little bit because that's explained. If have you seen that one, Connor? Yeah, that's the same thing. That's the that's the bur- burial ground, right? Uh, yeah, there's well, an Indian the bodies, bar- right? Move the bodies right? But no, I think they, I think they forgot to move the bodies. Is the problem, or they, they oh, didn't yeah, they spend the they money? Moved them and they yes, yeah. right. So, and the Indians that are buried underneath are upset that you know they're being maltreated by having uh, uh, a suburban house built upon them, right? Uh that's not the case here. The uh, I, I kept thinking about the. Indian, but you know the Indians in the area. But he actually goes to pains to say the Narragansett Indians didn't use it as a burial ground, or they couldn't find any evidence thereof. I guess another way of thinking about this is it's all kind of reduced to this one man's research. Uh, Whipple digs up all this this history, and you get these different narratives and explanations. But if you actually do have a shunned house in a in a town. Right, and people mm-hmm. are talking about that house. You're going to get that, you know. You're going to have that game of of telephone or whatever with it, mm-hmm. and the explanations are going to change over time, as depending on how, how imaginative the local kids are when they talk about the shunned house. Right? I don't know if every town has that, but we we sort of had our creepy houses. In you our small you, town. you go looking for them. You designate yeah. them, right? You're looking. You and then there were stories one. behind that, and. Uh, they're all sort of made up, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's or they're yeah. based on they're based on rumor, which are based on based on rumor. Yeah. So you know, parents say something and it gets exaggerated. And but in Lovecraft, the rumors are always true, right? They're all they're they're he never gives us a lie. He people might overstate the case or have judgments that are incorrect, but the the rumors are always. Uh, revelatory as in there yeah, well, definitely for lovecraft things don't have to be written down to be true no They're, in fact they the, are true the, it's the just, people sharing the stories are almost always in the right they always know what's going on yes and that's why you have to 
dr- uh, pay that drunk guy in alcohol to tell you stories because he all the stories he will tell you are true. I don't know if that's true in the game. Uh, I can't remember if if uh if there's a table like you roll a die and get a true rumor and a false rumor. I bet there's true and false in that, but uh in stories you actually want to have nothing there that's unimportant. Uh red herrings are o- there only to improve the story, not to uh fuck up the story <laughs> if in good writing. And I I got to say, you know, Lovecraft knows what he's doing. That's why mm. that's why these guys are unmarried. <laughs> I mean, think about it. It makes no sense. Why do either of them have any involvement in this? It's not their house. <laughs> <laughs> They're unmarried yeah. men. Their wives are not there to say, "What are you doing?" <laughs> yeah, they're enthusiasts, right? And free yes. reign on their enthusiasm. And yeah. <laughs> in fact, houses. in fact, there's a yeah. really, there's a really funny line, um, near the end of this, right before he, he, uh, does the carboys. Um, he says, my nerves were so shattered or something. Uh, I, I had to write some poems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he, he even makes a judgment on the poems, which is pretty funny stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> it made me feel better <laughs> which is and it tells you like this is not the standard dude um and so with the uncle being there i almost think like the uncle's the stand-in for lovecraft's grandfather because he's 81 right well and you know his um whipple that yes, name of course so it that's his last name elihu whipple is the mm-hmm. character's last name mm-hmm. but i I re- immediately recognized it because Whipple Phillips, I think, was one of yeah. uh, Lovecraft's grandfathers. Yeah, his um, um, maternal grandfather, I think. Yeah. So that name. But I also read um, somewhere about uh, this was the it was really probably a mixture of a few different uh, family members for Lovecraft, mm-hmm. um, like his grandfather. And then I think also maybe one of his uncles. Um as well but it seems like and also at the end like the fact that there is this um the narrator talks about he almost like a memorial for his uncle um he keeps him in his mind mm-hmm. is seems like almost a dedication to it um, does lovecraft's own grandfather it does um but he's also a he's a bachelor in this which is convenient because if you kill him off where's what's his wife gonna say what are his kids gonna say um, yep. luckily nobody has to say anything because he's a bachelor. Um, but he says also, uh, he shed some tears, um, and, and he keeps them in his memory and he thinks that it, had he not died, he'd still be alive here with me today. And that makes me s- sort of think that this, why is he telling us this story? I think it actually is kind of like, a, uh, another statement, <laughs> like a statement to the police, or maybe to his own lawyer about what is going on. You see what I mean? Like to explain his oh the missing happens. grandfather, right? Yeah. Uh, no, sorry, missing uh, uncle. Well, um, oh yeah, and he said also that he and Carrington Harris ha- he had to tell it to Carrington Harris, yes, right? Yes, because there were certain things that they needed to figure out to explain about what was going on at the house, right? Oh, and he uh, can back up my story at least partially. Yeah, or they can agree to lie and give each other an alibi or whatever they have to do 
to avoid being charged for murder. <laughs> yeah, uh, Carrington, all he did was say, it's fine, here's the keys, right? <laughs> he didn't really like Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, he, you know, he can back up the story. Yes, they went there, and yes. But, um, like, the, all the equipment that the grandfather, who uh, I believe he is supposed to have fought in the Civil War, right? Because he yes. didn't fight in World yeah. War One, but the armory gave up all the stuff to him, like, lickety-split. Yeah, and this is 1920. So when was the Civil War? It was 1860s. So okay, he would have yeah. he would have been the right age, and he he was a he was a doctor in the Civil War. Um. Mm. So, but uh, there there's a lot of nautical stuff, and that's what Evan was focused on in his podcast. Do you remember your your show at all, Evan? Yeah, I think I remember most of it. Yeah, I think so, I got I was really into the history of it. The, yeah, well, it's uh, it's actually really interesting because it's the history of the United States, right? Um, mm-hmm. And you make the point about how this is a break with the past, um, and there is a, a weird line in here about uh, about the ship being burned in 1772. Let me see if I can get this. Um, no, I don't have it handy, but basically. Uh, yeah, that that date, 1770. Oh, yeah, it's set in 1919, I think. Or may, maybe it's the end of the story is tw- 1920. Yeah, I I did, wasn't able to get my physical copy of the story, which minus the Klinger anthology. Mm. And I have the whole timeline. Like that one had, probably has more notes, marginal notes than any other of the stories in that anthology. It's, it's so many dates. Because I have it. all of the... Yeah, the historical events and the timeline I, I write out. So I did the opposite of what Lovecraft did, right? I read the story that made the timeline. It, yeah. He made the timeline and then wrote the story, apparently. Um, but it really, I think this, actually, this story sits nicely next to Case of Charles Dexter Ward in that you have some event and then it's like, oh, okay, well, now we're going to go into the deep history of this. All right, we're going to explore the history of this. Of, in the in Case of Charles Dexter Ward, it's the history of the man. Right, and mm. here's the history of the house and the different people who lived in it, uh, the people who built it, all that. But um, it, the timeline's very similar. It's, it's going kind of going back to colonial America, but the Revolutionary Era and that maritime period is super important in both of those histories. I don't know. It'd be cool to kind of set their timelines with the stories side by side because I think there's a lot of overlap. And, it's just a period was, of time that Lovecraft's super interested in, that Georgian America. Yes. There was a Mercy Dexter in this story. Mm-hmm. Mm. A lot of is fun that, Yeah, they're both Providence stories, so he probably that's probably on purpose. Yeah. Case of Charles yeah. Dexter was written at the same pretty much the same year as this. It was not published though until after he died. Hmm. Uh, okay, I have a question. Since these are both are both Providence stories and from the same time period, because um, I'm not familiar, I don't know how you guys how familiar you guys are with the history there. Um, but the names in this story were pretty extraordinary. I thought Mercy, um, Pardon, um, Elihu, yeah, Roby, well, yeah, Elkanah, Obadiah, Mehitabel. I wrote. I wrote them all down. Some of them are crazy. Peleg Harris. Peleg, yeah, that's is that's he in a slow. The, Peleg isn't that a character in um, Moby Dick. Pe- you think it is, Pe- but yeah, uh, it's from because they're from that area, right? Um, the yeah. the names are authentic, and there is actually another book this this reminded me of, and it's um, 
it's kind of, uh, I think, I know Lovecraft read it. I think this is his take on that book, but he didn't like that book that much. Um, and that book is, uh, The House of the Seven Gables. I think he liked the book, but he didn't oh. like that there was no, like, the supernatural element in that consists of a family curse. Um, where somebody is sacrificed, uh, at the beginning of the history, and it's actually right at the f- start of the book. They're like, I, I think they're burning him for witchcraft, or he was, he, he there's a judge who sentenced yeah. him to death, and he's saying, may you all drown in blood. <laughs> like, you, you know. Or drink blood, I think. Yes, you, may or you all drink, drink blood, blood, right? And then most of the rest of the novel is there's this nice old lady who likes baking cookies. <laughs> Yeah, and, <laughs> and the photographer who's renting a room, and, and it's set in the basement where the cook, where where the cooking is, and it's a dusty old house. It's based on a real house, right? Um, but the family curse, which is a real in the sense that you know people don't have the greatest of fortunes, <laughs> isn't isn't paid off by having a monster in the basement or in the sub basement. It's just paid off by um, you know. A story of a house and a family that lived in yeah. a house. I can see why um, uh, Lovecraft may not have liked the House of the Seven. Gables. I think he did like it. I think he he just didn't find it like he he was unsatisfied with it. I'm I'm assuming based on the fact that yeah. that he wrote this because what this really has that that doesn't is a payoff to this awesome setup. Where yeah. there's a family curse in the same way that there's a, a the undying thing, a terrific story. Uh, is that Barry Payne? I can't remember. Um, not w, Robert W. James. I did a show on it. The undying thing. No, I don't think it's a Chambers. Might be a Payne story. Uh, it's by Barry Payne. Yeah. Um, yeah. That one. It, there's a family curse. There's a werewolf. Somebody gets born as a werewolf. They lock him up and. Uh, labyrinth under the ground right underground stuff is awesome and the whole house comes crashing down like house of usher right here this is a happy ending so it's a kind of a it seems like a kind of a combination of poe's uh the telltale heart um (laughs) the telltale elbow (laughs) and uh the house of the seven gables um <laughs> is is the elbow the weirdest part of <laughs> in terms of uh weirdness well the elbow what, what he didn't that. discover was the loins <laughs> yeah no that would have been a <laughs> the vampire loins because he yeah. just starts digging and he's like what's this and it's like well, it could be anything <laughs> yeah no it's an elbow not a knee <laughs> But uh, but the the way he pays it off is actually by planting the seeds early, like the tree, the trees, uh, even the and even at the end where he, he says now the uh, the apple trees are giving out small sweet apples means means he's eating them right. He's coming by and visiting and eating the apple trees, apples from the trees there in and enjoying them, um, and he actually enjoys thinking about the house. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's a, well, there was a vampire in the basement at one well, point. And that's, is that similar? I'm trying to remember the end to the house of the seven gables. I can't remember the end either. And I, and I think it is like, I think that story is about the degradation of this family and mm-hmm. the house and even the chickens 
uh, mm-hmm. like becoming degraded. Um, and then at the end, stuff sort of gets better and it starts to rejuvenate and become nice again. Um, it's Hawthorne. So, yeah, 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 it is. Evan, have you ever looked into that? Because that's a really. I read it years and years ago. Yeah. It's an American it's novel, really, so you gotta I should, read it. I should do uh, Hawthorne one of these days. You you should. Uh, it's um. I like the, the goes, what's the main character's name? Because she's Hepzibah, right? That's what one of those yeah. names yes. from that period. Um, and I really like her as a character. Pinchon is is their name, right? Um, and Judge Jaffrey, uh, and then yeah. So it, it yeah, gingerbread cookies. There we go. Right, like. I liked the book, but it was not what I expected. I expected it to be more like this. Um, <laughs> like, um, I was hoping for like, yeah, something more like the House of Usher or like a weird story. And it, there's yeah. really little gems of weirdness, but it's very almost just little like a yeah. slice of life. Like, I, I think I, I remember it's kind of like uh, telling people get out of New England in a way. Right? <laughs> like, you got to escape this past. Mm. If, if, like I think it's a it's a like a lesson to America. Escape this past and and move on. Go to the frontier. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that's your New study. Though. The <laughs> of course, I mean, for Lovecraft, you, he wouldn't agree with that. Uh, right? You you went all the way uh, across the ocean, <laughs> so of course you took that message. <laughs> but other people are like, I'm going to fix up this nice old house, <laughs> and things can be better. Like Lovecraft, right? Nothing nothing makes him happier than finding a nice old house to rent. <laughs> wow, look at my furniture matches perfectly this ancient this ancient sideboard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the fan lights, they're amazing. <laughs> but I do think it's it, I, I think it's not an accident that he starts the story uh thinking about what Poe's interested in. So Poe would walk by here all the time. <laughs> but he didn't look at this house, which is so amazing. Um, in fa- instead, would, he's unsuccessfully wooing a lady, a poetess down the street. He should have stopped at this house. Yeah. Um, the, the house itself, uh, since it is a real mm-hmm. house that you can see, mm-hmm. um, is surprisingly unremarkable. Uh, like, I would, it seems incredibly sinister mm. from his, mm. like, the way he describes this is really, it's a fictional house mm-hmm. in the story, right? Um, it seems to exude a sinister aura, mm-hmm. whereas the reality of the house um, is pretty average. But I also read that it was – so he based it at this house, at this particular location on Benefit Street. But the sort of idea for it I think was from a different house yeah. um, that he had seen before. That um, had a bad reputation, whereas this house is just a nice house he appreciated. Yeah, this is in the Wikipedia entry. In Elizabeth, New Jersey, he describes it. Yeah. Uh, in a letter. Hellish place where night black deeds must have been done in the early 1700s <laughs> with a blackish unpainted surface, a naturally steep roof and an outside a flight of stairs steep. leading up to the second story. Is, is the, is, where's the unnameable set? Is that, is that an Arkham or is that? Uh, in, yeah, it's an Arkham. Is that in Providence yeah, too? It's an Arkham. I think that house is maybe similar. Oh, um, Jesse, just going back to that poem, the house mm-hmm. in this, because I got I've got the same quote here that you mm-hmm. were just reading, Evan, and it says, um, "Embowed in a tangle of ivy so dense that one cannot but imagine it accursed or corpse fed." Yes, right, which sounds so similar to that poem. It is, it is. Um, 
he's oh, he's always thinking about like why i mean uh, i i was telling a student about mowing my mom's lawn right and where the septic tank is it's all uh, uh, one of the vocab words we get uh in this story and many others by lovecraft is rank <laughs> r-a-n-k right which i tell my students is like um hey i just went and used the bathroom and uh don't go in there it's rank and and they say, what do you mean? I say, well, I took a big shit, <laughs> and it stunk up the air, which which is what makes rank, which is thick and stinky. <laughs> so and almost gr- like a physical force. Yes, and the, so the grass wanna... over the septic tank is like it's lush, it's rank grass, as opposed to the rest of the lawn where it's like you know sort of weak. <laughs> um, mm. what, what's the roomy, <laughs> roomy eyed grass? Describing anything that isn't an eye as roomy is yes. really gross. It's so like, funny. Even if describing an eye as roomy is gross, but, uh, yeah, uh, the, turning, I, I think it's wonderful that he's, he, even though he, at the end, he's eating the apples from that, from the trees that were growing from the thing that are now healthy, right? The roots of the tree still form the shape of elbows and arms. <laughs> fingers right so it's like oh yeah 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 it's gone but it's still here <laughs> but the evil's gone um and that's uh that's pretty um pretty good stuff because it it is this is a body horror story but not anything close to the body horror of of uh, color out of space which is like that's much more we're much closer to all the horror that happens there. It happens over a generation, not over six, you know, seven generations of people from different families living in the same house. We, do, we see all those deaths and stillbirths and stuff from a distance, um, which is much nicer. And then we finally see him on the face of the, of the uncle. And then that's, ooh, it's scary. And then he kills his uncle, right? Literally, like he starts hosing him down with the proton pack. He he does say that doesn't have any effect. Although, of course, <laughs> if we're going Telltale Heart, yes, if we're going that interpretation, then maybe it did have an effect, and he really and where where melted where is, his uncle. Yeah, yeah, he's in the sulfur. Uh, I was I was trying to keep track of the um, carboys <laughs> mm. because maybe I was thinking maybe he he only mentions that he pours four of them in. But no, he did, he he says he did two, and then all the sm- uh, this yellow gas came out, um, and then that affects his. Um, oh, he does have he passes out right. Um, yeah. he, his gas mask fails him a little bit, and he passes out. And then when he comes to, he pours the third carboy down there, and it has no no more smoke. But he pour- then he says he pours the rest down as well. I think that's how it goes. Hmm. But yeah, the Crooks tube turns out it has no effect, he says. And yet, um, the thing that really was crazy to bring was the flamethrowers. <laughs> because it's an old wooden house. And even if it is a wet house, which he insists that it is, um, you know, using flamethrowers inside a house, kind of dangerous. <laughs> yeah, flamethrowers, like, there's not a whole lot of room for delicacy. Uh, and they're military flamethrowers, right? <laughs> yeah. It's not like they're, um, you know, just like brazing some pipes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, pretty extreme uh, stuff. And and notice they don't bring any cameras to document, unlike in the uh, the 
TV or short film adaptation, which was pretty good. Did I send that to you, Evan? I don't remember. Yeah, I didn't watch it though. It's it's pretty good. It's twelve minutes. It was a nice uh, reimagining. Yeah, I think it's an adaptation. This, it's just it, yeah. it, it it is liberal about its adaptation because it's set in the modern or then modern era. Yeah, yeah. 2003 or whenever it came out. Yeah. Good music in that little yeah. thing. Well done. And the it acting does... was good too. Hmm. Uh, made me want to buy the DVD actually. I was like, hmm. And I think they have one other film on that YouTube site. So I'm going to check that out. And I'm not a DVD guy, but I kind of do want to see the rest of the films because that was pretty well done. Uh, we got anything left to say about this uh, shunned story? I don't have much to say. I didn't bring my notes, so I don't have all of my details. I was supposed to go pick it up, but actually I couldn't leave the house because uh, my, my daughter's of... school had a case and she oh, was God. like a close contact, so she had to. So couldn't go back for Mother's Day, so I couldn't get my old copy of my Lovecraft books. All sorts of cases here. People are just well. Taiwan's going crazy. It's like Taiwan's up to thirty thousand cases a day. For, for I think yesterday it was forty six thousand. Yeah. No, it's it's. But there's, then no there's one's one right it's now. Like, it's like it's like you'll have forty six thousand cases, and like fifty people will be like moderately sick, and one person will be seriously sick. Yeah. So it's, so it's called a, we're a like cold. Tra- tracking a cold, but yes. Yeah. And I know mm. currently two people who have it, and you know, it's uh, it, it, people are less crazy here now because we yeah. had two years of crazy. How's it in Australia for you, Connor? Um, I see people around me getting it all the time. I haven't gotten it yet. Um, How do you know you haven't five... gotten it? Have you done a PCR test? See if you got. Well, yeah, whenever I whenever I've been sick, I've done the PCR oh, okay. or antibodies um, test is what I... I'm actually meaning. Yeah. Oh, you mean like the rapid antibodies test? Yeah, yeah, just to see if you've had it. Because I think I've I done, probably had it and I just didn't have a test. So I've done those and yeah. I've also done, but if I was in Canberra I, or like where I live, I would do a PCR. Mm. Um, but because people are vaccinated, I think they get sick, but it doesn't really matter. And they just can, like, some, a lot of people are still working even when they're sick. Which is crazy. Like, I mean, but- I, I mean, working from home, so they're not oh, infecting other people. Wow. But um, that's... but it just doesn't. It seems like it seems like people just don't care anymore. <laughs> well, they're just over it. Yeah. So, but um, but not in Taiwan. This is the first big outbreak here. So they've oh really they kept everything closed. They had a. I think before this outbreak, they had total like eighty thousand cases in two years. And uh, was, like, what's the population of, of Taiwan? 25, 23, 24 million. Wow. But then they Huge. just had 46,000 in one day yesterday. That's and more than – still going There's up. more people in Taiwan than there are in Australia? That's crazy it's sauce. Equal. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. the islands are not equal in size, you know? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. That's why once it got in, it just like going like wildfire fire because it's like so dense. Like even Taipei is a small city, but like it's – it's in this little valley, so everyone's crammed in there. So it's a. It's That's crazy. Weird. I have no idea. It's really, realized. really dense here. So yeah. it's it's actually surprising they were able to control it for as long as they did. 
I guess they they controlled it till everyone got vaccinated. Now they're just like, whatever. Can't do anything now. Size yeah. of Australia versus size of Taiwan. Australia size versus Taiwan size. And the other thing about Taiwan is like over half the population just lives in like one city in the north. 215 and, times and the, bigger. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, anywhere where it's dense, right? Like, um, yeah, that's uh, stuff just is like wildfire. You can't really contain it. I think. I mean, the thing about Australia is that it's so sparse mm. that the lockdown and stuff was more, um, it was easier to quarantine, maybe. Hmm. Um, but, I mean, yeah. Well, what China would do, they're dense, but what they would do is like just, you couldn't leave your like apartment complex. That's crazy. And everyone lives in these too, apartment right? buildings. Yeah, yeah and, hardcore. And they're lockdown. still trying to try lockdowns to contain this. Probably the best yeah. thing for China would be if it got out at this point, because everyone there is vaccinated. Mm. And like um, this sort of uh, attitude in Australia was sort of like once we're vaccinated, um, we just open up and that'll be it. But it's, so it, but it sounds like Evan China's like you're vaccinated, but we're still locking down even any. Yeah, zero COVID. Well, like Shanghai, I apparently tried to open up a little bit and then they had an outbreak and then like, cause it's all political. It's like, that's on the guy's record, right? And it's mm. like, that's, he's not oh going to get his God. promotion or whatever. Right. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, he can't just, he can't just create a new message and go to the people. Right. That's the party's not going to, I mean, that could be the end of his career. Right. So it's like, yeah, big lockdown. And you'd heard the stories from Shanghai. And the party congress is this summer, so like the jobs are going to be doled out this mm. summer for the next your four record. years. Check your record. Uh, Tasmania yeah. is almost twice as big as Taiwan. <laughs> well, <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Mm. Well, uh, now we have places to ship all the uh, unvaccinated. <laughs> what Tasmania? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's. I mean, things are so stupid now. People will have a plan like that, right? I, I didn't. Weren't they shipping? Yeah, I I think Australia had an island they were shipping people to. Um, it's uh, not in well, Australia, right? Uh, refugees. There was um, what was yes, it? yes. What and, was it called? Um, oh, it's gonna look terrible. It's, they don't it's remember like the name. T- Tahiti um, style Nairu. Um, Nairu, uh, that sounds right. Um, but yeah, and uh, or Christmas Island. That was where mm. they, um, the uh, detention centers were, mm. and all still are. Um, yeah, but I mean, you know, ironically, ship people to Tasmania. That's what they did in the. Of course, the that's why it's so funny, right? Um, yeah. yeah, let's put all the undesirable people over here. Yeah. Um, outside of England. That's right. Get them on the opposite side of the planet. Yeah. They're crazy. So, uh, you mm. want to talk uh, upcoming shows? Sure. Yeah. All right. So I, can, I got this. Schedule. I think I'm on most of the upcoming shows. Good, now, good, so good. Maybe I can just go. Yeah. Poor what Paul's getting shut out because uh, all the weekend shows uh, changing. That's but, another Saturday. Uh, so next up capitalism. is. How long is that one? I don't have no idea. Prepare. Let's have a look. I will organize it for tomorrow, uh, probably. Cause it's I, about seven or eight hours. Oh, so it's one of his short books. I'm yeah, but it's, it's pretty dense. From the hour or two I've listened to so far. Oh, you're already in. So this it. is okay. the one, The Thief in Broad Daylight. Like a Thief in yeah. Broad Daylight, yeah. 
Um, Two fifty six pages. Okay. I, I hope yeah. he's the narrator because that'll be fun. No, that's <laughs> <laughs> double length. I might I might have to keep the, the headphones away from my face, otherwise I get spit the... all over my face. <laughs> it would be hilarious if you read one of his books, but kept all his verbal tics. I things. love it. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't know I don't know what causes it, but so it, it makes it every more enjoyable. He's a more enjoyable. He gets figure. he gets so excited when he's speaking publicly, like yeah. he really gets really amped up, uh, uh, right? I'm amped and up by him just, speaking. Yeah, by his own. Um, he just gets on a roll, and like it's not just the verbal text; it's also physical ones. Like yeah, the nose. I've seen. I've seen. Yeah, yeah. He like of touching his nose. Yeah, or wiping his nose. Um. Yeah. But I think he's just so into it, and his brain is just redlining. He's, and, oh, he's, uh, he's obviously, uh, you know, got one of those uh, things that people like to diagnose that I have no interest in diagnosing. But um, <laughs> I don't care. He's yeah. fine. <laughs> it's good. Maybe. I mean, you know, it, it'd be um, bad if he's not wearing a COVID mask and he's got COVID because you get a little bit of spit on you. But that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's worth it for having a Zizek. Um, I've been keeping up on his work, so I'm excited to read this. Yes, yeah. he's so prolific. And he's very and, prolific <clears throat> and fun. Well, I have I read I have his a stuff of... like back when he wrote "Living in the End Times." Uh, what's the one? First his tragedy, then as far as I was reading his books back then. But mm. I've uh, um, I'm most familiar with him as a film critic, actually. Yeah, he's a, he's a pop culture critic too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have some of his film criticism books. I about like certain directors and series mm-hmm. of films and stuff. He's a he's a public intellectual in a time when those don't really exist. I like yeah. that a lot. Um, so I, I wanted to say the Goddess of Vat- Vatabar is coming out uh, uh, Monday. Uh, there might be a problem with the Screwfly solution coming out because I may have a website problem that I'm not able to fix right away. But that's next. I've been editing that. Evan, you were on that one as well. Uh, yeah, Connor, you didn't do uh, Screwfly, but that's a great story. By oh yeah, it's fantastic. James Triptree. Uh, I always say Triptree. It's Tiptree. I trip over mm. her name. And then it'll be Mystery of Silmer, which is awesome. Um, and mm-hmm. Evan, you missed that one. Boy, that's a good story. Yeah. And a really good discussion too, I think. Um, but uh, upcoming. Strawberry Spring in two weeks. Um, Connor's not signed up for that. That's a Stephen King. It's on a Sunday at 8 a.m., so probably not a great time for you. Midnight or whatever. Marissa's going to be there. That was well, her that's idea. the plan. Yeah, that's the plan. She's she's uh, just took on some job editing some magazine, so we'll see if that interferes. And she's a di- bit difficult to to pin down, unlike Evan, who seems to have lots of time for Jesse's nonsense. Uh, Marissa's like, nope, not having it. <laughs> um, I try. Sometimes I'm too busy. Ah, uh, that's true. That's true. Usually, yeah, so I just don't have time to read it because yeah. I'm reading my own stuff. Of course. Ghostland. Up next. Connor's in for that. What about Evan? I didn't hear anything about Evan for which one? Ghostland in Ghostland? search of a haunted country. This is uh, Edward Parnell nonfiction. Oh, I never mentioned this. No, I don't know. Pull me down, maybe. Well, I think I think it'll be more interesting once it's in your hand. Okay. Uh, all right. Okay. Oh, I put I, Connor twice. In terms of Ghostland, oh man. Okay. You good for that? All right, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna get out of here. All right. Some breakfast. Sure. Well, I'll see you guys next time. Have a good one. Thank you. Um, yeah. Thanks. Connor, you good for the thing in the woods? That's a Saturday. Um, You're not listed. 
Is this? Oh, okay. Hang on. That's the, the one um, I mentioned, Velveteen Rabbit uh, author. Fifth to the sixth? I'm curious about that. I'm interested. But I need to um, also uh, mm-hmm. inform you some uh, news, yes. which is both good and bad. That okay. may, that will Give me the bad um, first. Okay. Hit, hit me with the bad <laughs> so I can feel better with the good. Okay. The bad news is my availability for podcasts will be limited and my ability to make audiobooks will be zero in the future. Well, that's not good news. That's bad news. I wanted you the... said you wanted the bad first. Oh, okay. All right. That's hey. a good news. Um, all right. I, I think you said that. The good news is, uh, you're right. I did. I just thought you gave me two pieces of news. Okay. Okay. Well, I heaped all the bad. Okay. Good. Good. What's the good news? Well, the, the good news is I'm moving to Germany. Um, oh, yes. And okay. that's part of the reason, uh, why I, I'm going to be away from my recording setup. All right. Um, and my, and I'm not sure what my ability will be like to do podcasts, right? So I'm it's out eight of hours in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever it was for Cora, I'll yeah. be, um, relatively similar. Um, so Su- Sundays are actually better for you then because it's four, four in the afternoon on a Sunday for you for an 8 a.m. show in Australia or in Germany? In Germany. Oh, okay. Well. That is not so bad. I just remember Cora being at like 3 a.m. for her. Uh, that was that's when we're doing it for you because it's 4 p.m. Yep. in the afternoon. Eight hours later gotcha. is midnight, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, that's actually really good to hear because mm-hmm. um, I was worried. So that's that double good news. Good, good news. Yeah. When is that happening? Um, from I'm leaving the country on the 5th of July. Okay. So, but between then, between now and then, um, like my apartment is in uh, disarray because I've got to get everything out. I'm renting out my apartment mm-hmm. and as well as just fix up, uh, Do you have a sort work out there? some, in- yes. Yeah. I signed a, signed a contract for a year. Um, but I'm taking a working holiday, so I'm not doing what I normally do. Um, uh, I'm actually going <laughs> to be an au pair if you know what that is. Yeah, I do. Um, yeah. So uh, it's, it's like a tutor for, babies uh it's 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 more like a daycare well what would you call it like a a bit like a nanny but you don't really do very much you you're there to supervise make sure the place doesn't burn down yeah you take the kids to their dentist's appointments or whatever exactly yep um so pretty easy but it's an awesome opportunity to get really good at german so um and not have very much responsibility, and I hate responsibility. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's good. I, I figured I figured you were going to be with the GCHQ or so, whatever, uh, doing more evil um, government data uh, analysis. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe that's the cover. Maybe the au pair is the cover because maybe yeah. Um, Secretly, I was talking to uh, Alex from Pulp Covers the other day. You know. Oh yeah, and uh, he works for McDonnell Douglas, which is the ones that produce the N-laws, the uh, javelin missiles that are taking oh, out Russian God. tanks. Um, and yeah. you know, Biden just asked for thirty-three billion dollars uh, for Ukraine, which is actually thirty-three billion dollars for the industry. <laughs> it's not actually Jeez. for Ukraine, right? Um, which mm. is, you know, it's it's like a flood of money to the contractors. Um, so. yeah, well, um, no, luckily, I mean, luckily I'm not, I would be, I feel slightly better about if it was a, 
helping Ukraine, although I wouldn't feel good about helping a war. But Well, you're just um, helping extend a uh, proxy war, like uh, in Vietnam, right? It was a proxy mm. war for how many years? 11 years? Is that right? 63 to 75? Oh, mm. I don't know, something like that. Yeah. yeah. But, and I feel, I mean, you can. And then, and then, you know, there's all the leftover Nazis, uh, with in-laws <laughs> after, after the war, right? All those Azov, yeah. uh, neo-Nazis. That, that can, that couldn't possibly go wrong or bite you in the ass, uh, later with the no. <laughs> Al-Qaeda's or whatever. No, couldn't possibly. I'd go never wrong. even considered that, but, uh, you are correct. But <laughs> I mean, <laughs> So stupid. My sister is a is a teacher, mm-hmm. and um, the and there's a, a Ukrainian lady who works at the school, mm-hmm. um, and everyone raised a whole bunch of money, um, to help support uh, her hometown, mm-hmm. which is like a, a village or a mm-hmm. small town, um, and uh, and um, nobody realized it, but all that money went to the local militia. Of course, it <laughs> to, did. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then that but money think- goes back to the states. Right, and they make the oh, well, p- people who things. own the McDonnell Douglas stuff richer, who yeah. own McDonnell yeah. Douglas and Raytheon stock richer. It, well, yeah, it's a scam. Done. It's a total scam. Um, there was a crazy well, they don't uh, have a choice, right? Uh, right, you're trying to defend. Well, the the alternative, rather than um, if you're Ukrainian, the alternative is let Russia invade and just well lay down. Y- yes. Yes. I mean, it's 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 pretty two shitty options. Well, yes, but uh, what? Uh, who are you? Who do you want to be your master? You want it to be the United States? Or you want it to be Russia? Because those are your options. Yep. Well, um, I don't think that, but like by them, I suppose you could say if they are dependent on the United States to help them and provide them military support, then you that would effectively be true, right? You're re- suddenly reliant on it but i um although i would say that's different to being literally occupied by another country yeah but the occupation's only gonna uh, uh, look that the those two eastern provinces right that speak russian prominent russian and and the already seized um part what's it called down by the sea of azov where the british had a war the crimea the crimean war remember yeah yeah that's already russian Mm -hmm. as well right so the this is uh there, there'd been a, like, people getting upset there was a war, right? There's been a war there since 2014, right? Yeah, it's been going on for ages. It's just that one side was not actually participating, uh, with active troops. <laughs> and, you know. And that's the Russian side? Yeah, yeah, the Russians were, like, uh, doing, you know, special operations, but they didn't roll tanks. Um, mm. and, and they were like, when's this negotiation gonna, gonna finally go through? And the United States is never. Because, this is how we make our money now, right? Mm. If you turn off the if you turn off the spigot of Afghanistan, you have to turn it on somewhere else. This is how the scam works. Um, yeah. But uh, what's so crazy? I saw this amazing uh, TikTok. Somebody had retweeted TikToks full of crazy stuff. I I don't I only see it through Twitter. But there was this guy. Um, he's out with his girlfriend. They're like going through the bill. <laughs> like you know what's on the bill. At the restaurant, and what, and it's like one dollar for Ukraine. It's like a tax, (laughs) like just added to your bill. And what that really is, it's not like it. It doesn't even like say you know accounting or anything like that. 
<laughs> There's no, it's just a dollar for Ukraine. So who knows where that money goes? But you certainly don't, right? Yeah. That's right. the, that's the point. It's like, um, they have those that, you know, businesses all around here all the time where would you like to donate this money to Ronald McDonald House or would you like to donate this money to Children's Hospital? I'm like, the Children's Hospital is funded through, uh, the taxpayers. Why are we doing special funding? Because then they can get extra funding. But if you oh, funded yeah. it right in the first place, you wouldn't need that. And so it's actually a way to keep, um, like sort of a, it's a parasite business, which yeah. is f- so fucked up because we're supposed to have universal health care and we do. But you're saying, well, children, you know, well, don't you have any charity? <laughs> and don't like, you no, this is a fucking insurance yeah. company. You don't, <laughs> there's no insurance uh, company charity. It's just either yeah, no. you have insurance for everybody or you don't. And we do. Mm-hmm. So what, what the fuck is this? It's a, it's a parasite on, on that. And it relies on sympathy. But, uh, yeah, when they start In- putting a bill, uh, like a, a, a non man, a non, um, like, you know, they have like automated tips added to your bill sometime, right? Yeah. And that's, but you yeah. know that when you go into a restaurant, you know, they might do that for the wait staff. But they don't do that for a fucking Ukraine war. So there is a sh- a shifting of, uh, and this will be a good topic to bring up in um, with Zizek. like a thief in broad daylight. Mm-hmm. Um, is the, that shifting of things that you could consider to be public goods, like uh, care for children mm-hmm. um, who are, who are ill, or other stuff, for instance. Um, well, that they're shifting from that from government responsibility. And paid for through taxes. Neoliberalism. That's exactly what it is, right? Yeah. And, um, privatizing recently. Yeah. There was these massive floods in northern New South Wales and like many, many thousands of people have lost their homes. And it it happened once. Like there was one big wave of floods, um, and destroyed all this stuff. Like the water was over people's roofs. Mm. And then it died down and everyone started cleaning up. And then another bloody wave of floods came through and did exactly the same thing. And like, of course, the charity a, a drops later. off because people can't, you know. Well, there is um, a government fund that is set up for this exact situation. But uh, one of the ministers, uh, I think it's the um, uh, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, I don't even know. Uh, it's, it's Peter Dutton. Um uh, anyway, and he, he set up a GoFundMe. Oh, Jesus. Um, to help the people. And he was crucified. Good. In the media. Because how dare you take something that should be a government responsibility and say, and, and he was sitting, he was trying to play it off like what a nice guy he is. Yeah. For doing this and trying to raise No, awareness. that's how they think. Um, that's how they think. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. they're trained that way. Right. Um, they're this yes. uh, World Economic Forum. Uh, has its tentacles all over Canadian politicians. Uh, Justin Trudeau, his uh, deputy prime minister, and the leader of uh, the opposition party that's in alliance right now with the minority government, um, the one I vote for, the political party I vote for, all trained by the uh, World Economic Forum billionaire, Klaus Schwab. What's right, his agenda? Okay. Make himself rich. Control the world. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Make himself yeah. rich, control the world. Okay. That's fine. 
I don't want him doing that. Get the fuck out of here. This should be like an instant disqualification. But uh, we don't have public knowledge of this stuff. It's not well known, right? You know, people aren't walking. Like Bill Gates gets bad press all the time. But there's also an active presence of people doing shilling for him, right? But there, mm-hmm. n- nobody's, uh, you know, has a thinks uh, Klaus Schwab has a bad reputation because nobody knows who he is. Yeah, you know, almost nobody. Yeah. But whereas Microsoft I, and and what's the uh, the guy who owns Twitter now? What's his name? Elon, right? Elon. And uh, by the way, um, uh, Evans, a he's always on me about um, um, not being a was a fan or a stan of Elon Musk. I'm saying I'm saying he's he's in the guillotine line. He's just at the back because there's a lot worse than him. Um, mm, but I, what's uh, what's so I, funny is. Uh, like one of the things apparently he he said to Joe Rogan, and I vaguely remember this. Um, he says, you, "Like you don't have a mansion, right? Like uh, you know, Bill Gates has like one of the biggest houses ever. He also owns like tons. I think he's the largest landholder of of crop cropland in the United States, which is crazy. Um, Elon Musk doesn't have a house, and the reason he says he doesn't have one is because it's an attack vector." People criticize people who have mansions and giant, um, uh, giant, um, you know, boats. property and yeah, and you know uh, they have fancy cars, uh, yeah. Um, and I point out Elon Musk, you know, he of the billionaires who want to go to space, he's the one who hasn't gone to space, right? Mm. The other two guys went, <laughs> Virgin guy and. Um, and think about how much negative – like there was – I mean I suppose you say all press is good press. But I would say the overall feeling towards Bezos, Beelzebub, um, <laughs> was pretty negative. I'm yeah. trying to figure out how to make his name into – mix Bezos with Beelzebub because it feels like there should be a good pun there. But <laughs> no. Haven't figured it out it's yet. Not, but, um, Beelzebub's not a, a popular enough, you know, devil. No, no. It, it's He's second too literary. The devil's uh, – yeah too much um it's like he's down there with asmodeus like, yes yes no one you, knows you. uh <laughs> but, hunting um, dungeons and dragons demons and people are like huh what <laughs> yeah, what <laughs> um exactly he's, he's like, like tiamat okay <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's got a hydra head and he's all in your business and he's also uh wait tiamat's a girl whatever <laughs> i like yeah. that tiamat's female and not a they them which is hilarious to me <laughs> well, with multiple they, heads, they heads. Are they all female heads? So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, possibly. Um, <laughs> Stupid. I am. My Tiamat law is sorely lacking. I know it is a monster, it is a dragon with multiple heads. Five and it's heads. The king. Yes, yes. Well, it's in that book uh, that I got at the dollar store. So, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and also, um, I think uh, Tiamat is like a um, biblical. Say, yeah, no, it's pre-biblical. It's the uh, the Iraq area. Like a, a Gilgamesh. Yeah, that uh, sort of era, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, um, it's a fun name, right? It doesn't sound like a D&D name. It's awesome. And so is, you know, um, Leviathan and all yeah, that yeah, stuff those, as well. Uh, yeah, um, that's why they're fun. Good stuff. Yeah. So um, yeah. when when are you leaving? And when uh, when's the last thing we can schedule you for? Okay, uh, I'm leaving on the actual date is the fifth of um, so that's the thing of the July. Woods. Oh, oh no, no. Okay, 
July. Yeah, we haven't scheduled July. that far ahead. So you you okay. pack up your microphone and your computer last, right? Because you use that all the time. Yeah, that will be the case probably. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, but there are many weekends which I'm suddenly have become not available because I have this crucial stuff to do. Right. Um, before I leave. Um, well, I've got you. I've got three blank weekends for you before you have to leave. How about that? I, yep. Okay, cool. <laughs> it would be awesome. I'm, I'm super keen to do so. Okay. And also get for- this. I, and I know this from experiences when you're packing shit up, you can listen to a lot of audiobooks. That's a good point as well. Actually, I'll need a good, um, uh, it, definitely. It makes the hours fly by if it's a really good book. So the thing in the sure. woods by Harper Williams, I could sign you up for that, I think, and be um, pretty safe. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'd say we should prioritize All right. because some of these I'm definitely not going to be able to do. All right. So I would say um, stuff that I really want to do is Ghostland. Okay. Um, I got you on for that. Uh, no Man's Land. Okay. When, by John Buchan. Yeah, where do you want to put that? Um. All right. Stuff. Let me let me list you the weekends that I'm I'm blocked out. So okay. I think the 13th. Okay, that's already scheduled. Or around, so we don't need that one. Of June, um, the twenty fourth of June. I, I'm showing the twenty sixth um, uh, as the weekend, but I'm going to just check. May. It'll be slightly different. I think these are Fridays. Okay, yeah. So the twenty fifth weekend, you you're not available. Or yes, you, not okay. available then. Okay. And I believe the eleventh and twelfth of right. June this so is the other weekend. I'm going to just. Are you on the? I, I see anonymous chameleon. So yeah, yeah. You see That's where it me. says on the far right? Can you um, uh, see where Paul not available? Just put Connor not available on all those sections. If you're, uh, are you able to alrighty. type? Yeah, I am. Uh, no, I'm not. Okay. You only. So it's. Uh, is this the right square? Is it lit up for you under Paul not available? Yeah, that's the one. Okay, so uh, Connor not available. I spelled available. Available. There we go. And then uh, I need to control minus minus here. Hold on one second. <gasps> Excuse me. Oh, sorry. It's the it's the one below that actually. Okay, twenty six not available, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what about the third? You're arriving. You'll be on a plane then, right? Yeah. So we'll take that one. But in. even the week or two after that might not be great. Yeah. I'll be settling in, trying to figure out. Well, the good news is um, we'll have time. Oops, control Z. We'll have time to uh, fill in those details as you get closer. Insert okay. cells. Insert call. Oh, I see. I have to do it above. I used to have more options. Insert row above. There we go. All right. So we're only booked out to... Uh, the third, but you think the next week after probably not too. Yeah, I would say probably not until like around the twentieth or the end of July. All right, so I'll do um, three there. Yeah. So the next it's one just is gonna the be seven as the tenth. Oh seven slash ten slash twenty twenty two, and then the next one is the seventh. Oh shit, it didn't work. I have a little band-aid on my finger and it's fucking things up. Seventeenth. <laughs> and then insert row below. No, I have to do it above. 
right. So like that. So um, then what I'm hearing is 619 is available for No Man's Land. Yep. I think after that point, like after those that month, um, right. I'm pretty much should be good. Should be settled in. And So 619, I'm putting it in? Um, for No Man's Land? Is that what I was hearing correctly? Um, yes, yes. All right. Ah, oh, man. I, I don't want to cancel on you if it well, turns out well, I have to. Well, why don't but... we just skip it then? Okay, let's skip it and we'll chuck it down a bit later. Yeah. Um, it's, it's on the chart there, so we'll just do it yeah. once you're settled in. Okay. Doing cool. your, oh, you'll have a, a baby on each knee and they'll be able to be screaming in German. For sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At four o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, it, it, I, I am off on the weekend, so I should oh, good. have okay. pretty much any time on the weekend. Yeah. Um, Excellent. Uh, with, yeah, with some limitations, but, um, and what part, what yeah. city are you moving to? Is it Berlin? Nope. It's a city called Kassel. Like, um, like with a K? K A S S E L. Kassel? Okay. And if, yeah, well, you can pronounce it that way. Uh, um, I, I, I am renaming however it's pronounced. Is one okay, L or cool. two? It's a Kassel. Oh, I got it. One L. And it um, is, it's a small country, so. Germany's yeah. What's the size of Germany compared to the size of Australia? Pretty small. Yeah, it's Germany's like, like size barely, of one state. Yeah, even one of our states. Wow. Um, bit bigger than Tasmania, but um. Uh, oh, it's like it's a walled city. Of course, it is. A walled city. Yeah. Yeah. Castle, um, hence. Close, close to Frankfurt. I think it's closest, but. Pretty much close to everywhere, <laughs> relatively yeah, speaking. Yeah. And, and um, they got those uh, Uber roads. The, what are they you called? mean the o- Autobahn? Autobahn? Yeah. yeah. Ultra roads. Um, yes. Yeah, although I'm not sure whether, not even sure where that is. Never been on it. Well, but, they go all across Germany, I think. Yeah. Maybe these are these big, these big roads. Um, yeah, anyway, so. That's where I'll be. Um, pretty much Germany's all in the same time zone, I think. So that's no. Yeah, they're all they're eight hours ahead from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe there's a difference in daylight savings or whatever. But we're already dealt with that for the year, I believe. Mm. So maybe it's maybe it's nine hours ahead. Uh, I think it's the same time zone as the UK as well. I'm not sure because I've had Mr. Jim Moon on. Uh, uh, that would be Germans. That's feasible. I think if he's in, yeah, if he's in the east, he's. Um, uh, I don't. He's in central. He's in Darlington, which is like a small town in central England. Uh, okay. Boy, he's. I don't know if you've been hearing, but he's been having serious problems with with his Patreon. Um, the company. Like what? Uh, the company uh, that was like administering payments for Patreon, which is crazy that they subcontracted that out, um, was like, they, you said, you can't have your stuff now. I was like, what? <laughs> like, you just, you know, they canceled his account. Oh, and, um, oh my God. And, you know, the explanation was nothing. But what's crazy is this is, this is like a saga on YouTube uh, and um, on uh, Twitter right now as well with, like, political ones being canceled left and right like paypal just canceling mm-hmm. people's uh access 
right, to their yep. accounts because they're uh, Russian-affiliated media, a.k.a. Uh, they don't go with the program. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, and private companies, they can do whatever the fuck they want. Yeah, that's why, like, this is why, like, I have no interest in NFTs at all. But the explanation I got for it finally is like, oh, actually, I finally understand what it's for. It's basically what they want to do, the NFT weirdos, is mm-hmm. they actually want to just make pe- get people used to the idea of purchasing using uh, coin, you know, crypto. Yep. And oh, well, and it's and once I do, like, if if I could send Mr. Jim Moon crypto easily, I would, right? Because then he doesn't have to deal with any of this shit. There's no fees at all. Pay, uh, sure. uh, what's his name? Um, Elon. He he was uh, early investor in PayPal, right? So that's yep, where his yeah. money came from. And oh, yeah. and uh, yeah, another early investor in PayPal uh, is uh, Charles Ardai, who I had on the podcast. Um, oh. he, he is uh, the guy who owns Card Case Crime. You know that okay. company? No. Dude, so good. T- type in hard case crime. Hard case crime. And there's a website, right? And what they did, uh, what he was interested in, he, he took his PayPal money and he started a publishing company that only does awesome covers of old pulp, pulp style paperbacks. Oh my God. And if yeah. you click on, like, it's not in order of publication anymore, but if you click on any of the covers, they're awesome. And it's yeah. a mix of new and old. And the old are, like, you can see, uh, he's done some of them. Like, there's one called 50 to 1. That's the 50th book. Um, that's by Charles Ardai. He's, a, he's an okay writer. He's not amazing. Um, mm. but he has the correct vision, which is you get those fucking awesome cover artists who are still alive and you pay them money to do what they did in the old days. Yeah. And like, this is, this is, uh, why Elon is good too. It's not because having billionaires running things is good. It's because he has passion for things. He's in, like Zizek. Mm. He's enthusiastic. Like he isn't like just trying to build the government out of money. He wants to go to Mars, right? He literally wants yeah, yeah. to go to Mars and he likes fast cars. That's why he likes, yeah. uh, right? Like he's interested in Rocket everything. Uh, yeah. He's interested in all the things he's interested in. Like, um, who else is, uh, making a satellite, uh, internet? Nobody, right? Mm. And he's doing it. Why? Because he wants it. So that's if, if you uh, suddenly gave a lot of people money who uh, are just passionate about shit, um, mm. you would see a lot of change in the world. And there's a lot of people who are not passionate about shit. They just want power. So that's why yeah. him not having a, a mansion is like, yeah, mansion's nice, right? But what do I need it for? Well, it makes it nice, but I don't want nice. I want rockets. <laughs> I want, right? So he lives in like in, in, uh, Texas where he moved his company. And yeah, it's, he's anti union, right? Which is bad. But, um, he also is. is? Oh, yeah. He, he. Oh, no shit. He has a lot of money, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, yes. But also, you know, one of the things the union does is it actually, um, limits power. And mm. he is anti having his power limited, which is a real thing. But you know, uh, Toyota, which is a uh, producer of the best cars in, in Japan, right? And arguably the yep. best cars in the world. They don't have unions. 
which is really strange because they pay the same rate as Honda and Datsun, and yet they produce the best vehicles. So, what's so are they are they Japanese, by the way? Yes. Did you say that? Yeah. Well, the to- Toyota is Japanese, that- but all the other ones have unions, and the yeah. Toyota doesn't. But they also have also- high pay rates for their employees. It seems, yeah, it's also to a degree a cultural thing because I don't know, I don't genuinely know about, but I've heard things about the hierarchy in, um, or the attitude towards hierarchy in some Japanese country, like the CEO will eat lunch in the cafeteria with everyone else. Yes, they get higher pay, but they don't get 75 billion percent more, right? Uh, And exactly. it's the same with Germany, um, right? They have like a culture yeah. of you have to have some sort of uh, parity between the, like you were saying, responsibility. <laughs> and, um, yeah, yeah. and, uh, you know, so it isn't just extracting value, uh, for a, a company no. like Toyota. Although I, but I've heard bad things about their vehicles lately. Um, I have no experience with their it. vehicles lately. So I don't know that that's the case. But here's the thing, right? Um, that cultural, the fact that there is that aspect of the culture, it means that there is really no need for a union because people, people only unionize when they feel really upset about how they're being treated. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is we want workers to be, um, self-actualized and stuff, right? <laughs> I do. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but there are some jobs where the money compensation is, is there. <laughs> Uh, because the job isn't fun. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, that makes sense to me. So, like, uh, me, I get less pay than I should get, uh, given my, uh, awesomeness, but I also have way more flexibility in my work than anybody else I know. I, I teach my students Lovecraft shit because that's yep, what I'm yeah. interested in. Right? Um, sure. And they like it because, you know, they're getting stuff and, um, but I, I, I'll do testing, but it isn't the kind of testing that they are afraid of. It's, uh, I keep asking them the same questions until they know it backwards and forwards and can answer my questions. And it isn't like a scary exam where they have to regurgitate something they memorized five minutes ago. And it's hard to teach them not to do that because that's what they're mm. trained to do. Right. But the, so, uh, yeah, I, I, if I, if I had a lot less um, self-actualization in my job or uh, way more hours, I would want way more pay. But I don't need way more pay if if I have more freedom. So, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying uh, Elon Musk is the best guy. He definitely needs to be in the chopping block. But he ain't the, he ain't number one on the list, right? We don't start with the the richest. We start with the worst. And Bill Gates is way worse than... than uh, I mean, Bill Gates is more responsible for uh, me being locked down and you being locked down and everyone else being locked down than than Elon Musk was. Mm. It's not to say that he was the only one responsible, but he was way more responsible. He, he, this guy with no medical degree is, uh, you know, has vast control over medical structure throughout the world. That's kind of fucked up. And the reason he has yeah. that is because he, he stole a computer program back in the eighties from another guy. That's, <laughs> yeah. That seems just got lucky. Uh, well, no, it was, it was ruthlessness as well. And, you know, mm. uh, tiger eye and all the, all, you know, he wasn't, it wasn't, he, he lucked into it. 
but he's also well, he was in the right place at the right time. Yeah, and he also um, uh, saw you know he had a he so people complaining about Elon Musk not making anything. He's not really an engineer. Um, I I would say he seems to make a lot of stuff by hiring a lot of engineers. Mm. Right. I mean, who yes, has changed yes. cars more? Now, uh, there's a really funny tweet. Uh, I probably didn't see it. Um, uh, Elon Musk uh, was replying to uh, Bill Gates. Um, and he says, uh, B- Bill Gates says, I want you to uh, consider talk- uh, giving your money to charity uh, through my Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, except I guess it's just the Bill Foundation now. <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess so. And and Musk tweets back to him, "You still shorting Tesla stock?" And he says, "Yes, but that's a business decision." <laughs> and Elon Musk says, uh, "How to lose?" He quote tweets him and says, "How to lose a boner fast?" And then it's a picture of uh, Bill Gates with his gut sticking oh, out. Did you see this? I saw this. Yeah, yeah. And like the reason Elon Musk is. Uh, good is because he's a fucking troll and he's trolling the right people. The reason people like um, uh, Trump is for a very similar reason. He has the right enemies. Mm. And uh, one of the things that people really liked about Julius Caesar was he had the right enemies. Mm. And Julius Caesar was not a uh, he, he was from the upper crust. He was a rich guy. But he knew where his bread was buttered in terms of his power came from his soldiers, right? Yep. And uh, Elon Musk has a lot of quote-unquote fanboys. And I'm not saying I've got a Musk shirt and I'm driving a Tesla vehicle and, and anything Musk says is awesome. I'm saying I can see the the vast appeal and I cannot see the vast appeal uh, for a guy like <laughs> Bill Gates worshipping, right? Because. Mm. That's a guy who, you know, lying, lying to our faces and has no sense of humor. Whereas Elon Musk definitely has a sense of humor and mm. uh, he won't lie to your face. Like his tweet, the worst tweet he's ever tweeted was, um, we will, we will coo whoever we want, which is really okay. fucking evil, right? Sure. Uh, Cause you know, we, uh, that, that country has lithium. <laughs> I need lithium for my batteries. We will coo whoever we want. He isn't apologetic for it. He's just being honest. And, okay. you know, I prefer that to Bill Gates knowing better, pretending like he knows better than me that, and what he's doing is for my benefit. Fuck him. He's a liar. Mm. So, yeah. Um, yeah. and, and who knows how much trolling is involved in that particular quote? Cause he doesn't really have the reins of power exactly in, United States, he's just one of the many power players. But yeah, he's the, mm. he's making money off the government too. But he's also changing the world in a way that, uh, like, what what has Microsoft done for you lately? <laughs> uh, charge me money. Um, <laughs> well, again, delivered me service. But yes, I, I agree with you. Uh, I see what you're saying. Right? Uh, they got um, Skype. Did they improve it? No. No, it's still a piece of shit. Uh, it, it, we used to work great, and they've sort of fucked it up continuously for 12 15 years mm-hmm. so and uh, i actually talked about skype um recently and someone said what you use skype i know um yeah why do you do that um because of jesse uh, and all the contacts he has that are on skype and it's just not convenient to do discord and all the other 
it's it's yeah. a legacy leftover, but it's still free. Which yeah. and, we, and you got a system that works for recording, so yes, I got yeah. a system that fairly works. It's they're always fucking around with it, but the thing is, is there is an inertia there that is actually like Discord has apparently been canceling people um, for doing Hangouts that are disapproved. Uh, Skype has not done that yet. They've never, um, no. uh, you know, they're they're still fucking around with the thing, but they're not fucking around in a censorship way, which yeah better hmm. uh, so yeah but uh yeah I, I don't i don't like microsoft products i try not to use them however everything the ecosystem that's the healthiest is unfortunately still microsoft mm. i mean try try being a linux guy my friend <laughs> it's like uh, yes. you want to uh, you want to no, it's an uphill struggle. sail across and the pacific ocean with a granola bar that's what you're yeah, <laughs> that's where you ask. And absolutely for. no chance. I do own a Mac, but no chance I'm going there. No, and Macs, Macs Other worse than... because they don't have as many options and the prices are higher. Yep, and they have their little monopoly that they like to. Yes, the um, old garden. Yeah, no, I I bought a laptop. Right, years. It's probably like seven years old now. I still use it, um, and it works fine for browsing. And mm-hmm. I do a bit of recording on it. Actually, mm-hmm. that's one thing I will say. Um, Pretty shit for everything, but their drivers for recording stuff just mm-hmm. seem to work. Mm. Um, my, like with my Windows computer, I'm always fucking around trying to get yeah. drivers to work. Um, and Mac is uh, much more for creators in a certain sense, but yeah, but it's it, it's limited, right? Like it is. I actually think Windows got a lot better, wider range of software. Yes, um, they don't limit you in terms of the hardware the way of mac does like mm-hmm. i have my little laptop that i take into record mm-hmm. that's really nice for what it is my big computer that i edit shit on and try and, and render videos is has got all the ram and and hard drives that i need and don't have to pay mm-hmm. a ton of money for it mm-hmm. and it's fucking good um yeah so so what are you Mac's gonna do about moving moving that stuff over because you're gonna be on a different electrical system right uh, oh yeah yeah well my computer Everything's going in storage. I'm taking oh, one really? suitcase okay. and my laptop and probably my camera. Oh. Um, is this going in your parents' basement or have you got like a storage locker you're going to be paying for for the next 5,000 years? I have a storage locker at the basement in the garage of my apartment. Oh, okay. And I own this apartment. Oh, you're so renting rent it, out. it out. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And um, so this is – so. Oh, you don't have to move that much. That's not so bad. Just go downstairs. It's not, um, yeah, yeah, well, it's not that big, right? And the problem is that if I ever want to move my stuff, I need to organize things into stuff that I want to move overseas mm. and shit that I don't want to because right. it's going to be expensive. Scan, and the scan reality all your is books. now I'm getting, um, <laughs> I'm not going to, yeah, well, I'm taking photos of the covers because <laughs> I have some paperbacks I fucking love, the covers of them. Yes. But the reality is I just can't keep Speaking them all because. Oh my God! Check this out. This is a new. Uh, looks like a Dosa Dosa Ace Double style. Uh, I know sixty nine Barrel Street, but I hadn't seen this one before. The Strange Embrace. I got a couple of, got a couple of good ones. Oh yeah, yeah. I that just saw that artist um, um, Robert McGinnis. He died recently. He's so good. You can tell he's the artist because look at the length of the lady on the top's legs. Legs. Her legs are like yeah. the twice the the rest of her body. <laughs> Yeah, she looks almost like a spider. <laughs> and her neck as well. Very yeah, long. Long, elegant. long. 
He, yeah. he, he extends. Um, but dude, like, Unreal. try and find a book like that yeah. today uh, that isn't by uh, this company. They just they don't make painted covers other than this pretty company. Pretty phenomenal covers. Yeah. I mean, like, okay, so in these books, oh, man, I want to grab a couple of these, but um, I'm going to post them on Twitter, mm-hmm. right? Like, some of these paperbacks are like, I've got... I've got, you know, Michael Whalen, mm-hmm. that artist. Yeah. Right. I got some HP Lovecraft paperbacks mm-hmm. with his art on them. Nice. Which are absolutely phenomenal. I love them. They go for about $5 online. They're worth really nothing. Right. And the reality is like, they're going to go, I'm going to try and give them away to somebody mm. in Australia. Mm-hmm. Like, you want this? Give me five bucks for postage. <laughs> um, yeah. But, um, you should but this is that. the, this is the problem is like so much of my collection of books are not actually, Hard to find books or really worth much, but I bought them secondhand because they got fucking fantastic covers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, I love that aspect of dude. Paperbacks. What makes you want to read a, co- a book other than looking at the cover? You exactly. heard you heard it had five stars on Goodreads. Good luck. Because gives a shit. Yeah. Um. So me, also- uh, what I'm sold by is the name of the author because I read that yeah. author before. He's really good. He's always he always does a solid book, and it's got an amazing cover. Dude, I'm down for that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, agreed. If if I see a illustrated cover or a painted cover, I'm like, this is going to be good because I know in the culture where in the culture it sits, mm-hmm. right? Whereas if I see a really pretentious looking cover, I'm like, ah, fuck this. Yeah. Um, it's probably boring. Wow. Anyway, speaking of speaking this book of, is selling for nine hundred ninety uh, ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cents in hardcover. That Stranger that Brace that? came out in 2012. Jesus. Uh, we actually have a bunch of these in the garage, but they're not that book. <laughs> no. They're early well, they're, ones. They're probably. Like 361. Um, uh, you have that one. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm just looking at some of these covers. The Girl Who Electrified Tesla. <laughs> and it like Oh, I think that's a comic. Um, uh, yeah. Some I of these are comics, yeah. Look, more like comic art, but um, Gun Honey. I just did a review of that. That's a comic written by the guy Charles Ardai. He actually did yep. a really fun series uh, that's not here. That was sort of a spin-off of this. Um, that is, uh, let's see if I can bring it up. It's like modern day pulp adventure, um, yep. but in a modern setting. Charles Ardai. Uh, no, that's not it. Page two. Uh, he's called Gabriel Hunt. Um, mm. Gabriel Hunt, Ardai. Let's see if I can bring this. Gabriel Hunt, Ardai. Yeah. Uh, Hunt through the cradle. Oh, so these later versions, they have terrible art. Um, but the original ones, aha. Send this to you. Uh, this is very much Robert E. Howard style. Oh, that's very small. Uh, let's try this one. Visit through Napoleon's web. Oh, are these? Here we go. Control A, Control C. There we go. Dangerous book for boys. <laughs> uh, so Orbic is the artist there. Uh, through Napoleon's web. So it's like a series, uh, set in a modern, you know, it, but it's like a pulp adventure character. Oh, this is good shit. Yeah. Some real El- Elborak. Yes, very Elborak, but modern. Yep. Like it's set in the modern era, but it's, it's basically Elborak. 
Um, yeah. And so that's why I like Charles Ardai, even though he's not the world's greatest writer, he has the right taste and he's enthusiastic yeah. about getting it done, which is very cool. Yeah. And it's like, I want good po- covers on my art. I'm willing to pay. Uh, and, and Stephen King really likes him. So he keeps giving him books like uh, the Colorado kid was the biggest thing to hit um, uh, this company. And it's barely crime, right? Like it's just <laughs> it's, it, there is a crime in the backstory or something like that. Oh, OK. Hmm. But yeah, he's he's done a bunch of um, of uh, books for him. Hard case crime guy, Charles Arda. Um, oh, is like releasing this up. Yeah. I recognize Joyland as well, I think. Yeah, uh, Joyland's in that same series. Yeah. Uh, uh, later, same that's a recent one. That that cover's not that great, actually. Later. Mm. But look at all the Westlake. There's so many Westlake titles. Um, oh, and yeah. some of these are never been published before. And then some of them are classics. Hmm. Okay. Oh, that's a check terrible these cover. The Lawrence Block... Um, um, Walk Among the Tombstones is the movie cover, and that's terrible. Oops. Yeah. Really good. Hey, and look, nice, I'm... nice length. So you take one of those on the plane if you, if you uh, want to have something to hold in your hands, you'll enjoy yourself. Okay. Cool. I might do that. Um, uh, hey, I might head off because yep. I want to do some recording today. I'm going to please do. S- hopefully, slam out two. Who knows? I'm, I'm going to finish up. Um, uh, what, what, do, what was the one I did? Uh, Gods of Balsagoth mm-hmm. and get started on the Black Stranger. Awesome. And uh, this is why I'm doing these because pretty soon I won't have my recording set up. Mm-hmm. I just want to get as much done as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, so we'll see. Yeah, if, you, if you're uh, putting the YouTube video together, I can probably scrape up a few more images too other than the one I sent you for the oh, Black cool. Stranger. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, that's what I'm... Uh, what makes me excited is seeing stories. Ooh, I want to read that. I want to read Skull Face. Look, that guy's got a skull for a face. He's like Skeletor, amazing. except cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, um, okay. Speaking of which, on this list, Max Allen Collins, he's okay writer. I once sent an audiobook to him. Uh, he, he ordered one from the website and I'm like, Hey, that's Max oh, yeah. Allen Collins. Um, uh, that series he has on here called Quarry, um, it, it's, it's pretty good, but it was turned into a really good TV show called Quarry and it got canceled after two seasons, but it's a hitman, um, whose name is Quarry. And the reason he's called Quarry is because Quarry is a thing that you hunt. Uh, yep. but also they, he meets his, uh, fixer in a quarry. Oh, okay. Um, interesting. And yeah, it's a, it's a good show. So, um, if you're, uh, Looking for something to watch on an airplane. Good thing to torrent and put on your computer to watch because it's, uh, it's hard case crime, uh, but on TV. Cool. Yeah. I will check it out. Quarry. Um, easy. Okay. Talk hey, to you later. To talk. Thank you so much. And, uh, catch you later. Looking forward to next time. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Alrighty. See ya. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.
a month ago. Wow, has that been that long? Okay. <gasps> Where's Evan living? He's in Singapore He's or Taiwan. Or China or Taiwan. Taiwan. Okay. Yeah. Formosa, soon to be part wow. of mainland China. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you, we will see what happens, I guess. I guess building, yeah, I was actually doing an architectural project about Taiwan recently, not for a long, I just. I had to do some drawings of Taipei 101, which is their giant super yeah. skyscraper. So. Their, their show off. Oh, Evan yeah. sent me a Crooks tube. Oh, no, that's Connor sent me a Crooks tube. <laughs> well, a drawing yeah. of a Crooks tube. Oh, there hey, it is. what's up? Hello, how's it going? Good. Hi, I'm Jason. Hey, I'm Connor. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Um, as I was telling Jesse, I have to bow out at about, uh, at about, uh, 445 or 5. Um, yeah. But uh, I will. So I'll do my best to just ramp, to just talk over everyone and sure. ramble yeah. all about Sounds everything. Good. Before <laughs> you, I, you do my job. Leave. Okay. You're in good company then. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, what happened to Evan? Because he said 7 a.m. his time, but uh, <gasps> I don't see him. 4 p.m. Oh, no. He says 4 p.m. No, I said 4 p.m. my time. Okay. I'm going to write a highly literate philosophical novel aim for the National Book Award, and then call the main character Darth Slondo Atuba. He's fat and lazy. <laughs> we were we were doing... Um, ah, yes, here it is. Uh, while we wait for Evan. Uh, Evan. <laughs> I'll let I, it take. While we wait, I'm yeah, just going to make a coffee real yeah. quick. I was, right. I was teasing Evan about um, uh, Heritage Auctions is a, a Twitter account I just started following, but a website oh, really? I've, I've been... Um, visiting for many years where they have lots of great original art and they have some employee showing off original first produced and first film stormtrooper helmet from original star wars and then the face emoji is like oh my god and then also warned by stormtrooper that talks to bartender after obi-wan kenobi's disarming encounter with cantina in cantina with dr evazan and ponda baba <laughs> oh my gosh. And I said, Dr. Uh, oh, I sent that to Evan. So I'm buying this for you. <laughs> and he says, Dr. Evazan and Ponda Baba convinced me that Star Wars does not use random name generator to set, uh, generator set to cartoon monkey. And then convinced <laughs> me it was not always this way. Star Wars names are were always dumb and random. A drunk DM needing a last second name for a random thug NPC could do better than Darth. Vader, and then I sent him my list of Star Wars characters that I made up on the spot. Merc okay. Rasher, Dusk Harsher, B4U8, uh, <laughs> Tax Shader, uh, Grand Muff Duvet, Sniff Groper, <laughs> Honk Gluer, RU12, <laughs> Admiral Horkbark, Loof Pathjogger, Ouch Bin Grouch, Weed, Weed Whacker, <laughs> That's A K K A R. Tula the Shed, <laughs> Nissan Mazda, and Baby Mazda. <laughs> oh, because modern. Of modern course. Star Wars. <laughs> Baby Yoda. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I think he makes a good point. It is for children. <gasps> On the other <sighs> hand, um, it, it's better than current Star Trek. Really? I haven't, I, yeah, I it's watched a little bad. bit of it, but I just, uh, I, I just, you know, there's there's so little time in this world. Dude, there's no time. <laughs> you don't even have a, a full hour, possibly. So where's Evan? Okay, I'm going to try him again. 
off. I'm going to ping him on Twitter. He usually gets the time wrong. Oh, well, you know. Ping, ping. Show now. There we go. Oh. Uh, I sent also the wrong one. Oh. Um, I shouldn't have sent that audiobook from LibriVox because the guy didn't pronounce stuff right. I figured he w- he sounded like a good narrator at the beginning, and then I started listening to it <laughs> for the... Oh, he says, give me a few. Okay, good. Um, uh, and then... He called it the stunned house the whole time? No, he just... Just like... Uh, the first thing he screwed up was uh, N-I-T-E-R. He called it knitter, and I'm like, oh, no. Oh no, yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah, the, I thought he was saying um, the Roulet family. He, he pronounced it oddly, like Roulet. Yeah, you <laughs> know what? Like, it did sound like a little Roulier. bit like Roulier. You're right. Um, and uh, yeah, so. and especially because um, actually, we'll save it for when we're recording. Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to use that one in the audio. I'll I'll use Greg Marguerite's because I know his is good. Um, oh, I, I was well, just giving a LibriVox person um, uh, an opportunity <laughs> since shot, yeah. Greg's been dead since for 10 years, but I know his version's good. Whereas mm-hmm. this guy, he sounds like he's got a good voice, but he doesn't know how to pronounce stuff. So, Well, I, I yeah, just read the story, so I don't – yeah, I, I I'm sorry I didn't listen to that. That's audio. all right. You don't need to. Although Wayne Junes is all over YouTube, and it's excellent. Mm. He's um, – Definitely. He's uh, not able to uh, – assert uh dominance and and start putting his stuff all over youtube but uh you mean is does he have it copyrighted like he doesn't it's it's not it was work for hire Uh, but uh that company's gone out of business and so and it's just any it's just anybody's it's a free-for-all basically but it's not public domain so i'm not gonna i'm not able to use it what i need him to do is like re-record it and then give it to me yeah but he's that, that would hard. be good. That would be great because he's the best. His mm. his uh, his version is the first version I read of it. I'm yes, pretty sure. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Um, but this so this LibriVox narrator, yeah, I thought he had a good voice, but great um, voice, yeah, and it was recorded really well. Actually, nice setup. Yep, a lot better yeah. than Greg's. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, but I just think yeah, there were a few. There was like. Uh, he just needs to learn edges. to pronounce the words. Which yeah, is, it's, it's a that's yeah. a tough one. You um, you do pretty damn good. I I mean you you take on those Robert E. Howard texts and only every uh, once in a while is there some sort oh, of oh you're a, also a, you're a narrator Connor. Sorry, I'm I'm coming here with total ignorance. Oh yeah, um I do yeah at, like amateur um <laughs> but I do I uh, record some. Like various audiobooks, um, cool. uh, but it's it's always tough because, like for instance, like um, uh, Byzantium. I remember how do you pronounce it? Byzantium, Jesse? Byzantium, yeah, Byzantium, yeah, yeah, and um, or just words like that where uh, there is ambiguity about how to pronounce it um, are always tough. There's or sometimes instance, more than one correct pronunciation too, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, especially between American and English, or or like um, Queen's English sort of stuff, like mm-hmm. aluminum and alum- aluminium. aluminium. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, that's always like a bit of a challenge. But um, uh, yeah, you really benefit from learning the phonetic alphabet, I will say, <laughs> and uh, being able to look up 
the technical pronunciation. Uh, there's no there's no excuses for people not to be able to do it now unless you like that. Oh no, that Dungeons and Dragons book I was tweeting about. Um, like, man, that thing was put together so shoddily. Um, this this is the hilarious one, Jason. Um, Which one? I, I didn't see this. Uh, I know. I'll tell you. Um, so basically, I, I went to the dollar store as I am wont to do, uh-huh. and uh, or, or is my main? I don't know. M e i n. I don't know. <laughs> I got a lot of throwdowns book afterwards. Anyways, I went to the dollar store and I saw a Dungeons and Dragons book. It's like 2022 Dungeons and Dragon Annual, and I'm like, hmm. So I looked through it, and then I was okay. I'm going to take this to counter, see how much it was. It was four bucks. I'm like, I'm going to take a risk. <laughs> And I, I started looking through it, and it's like mm, about half of it sort of ads, kind of. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, of course. And then yeah. about another half of it – no, another half. Yeah, another full full 75% of it <laughs> is um, is uh, sort of like uh, word scrambles and, you know, like really basic low-level stuff. And then another 25% of it is kind of interesting, like bestiaries and stuff. And then they had a couple sections on on uh, podcasts and live streams and stuff like that. You know, very modern D- Dungeons and Dragons stuff. And uh, I'm like, uh, okay, well, maybe I'll. I I I I knew I would get my money's worth out of it because I would have a tweet, <laughs> yeah. and then I'd mm-hmm. give it to my students, and I don't mind if they, you know, spilled food on it or whatever. Wow, I didn't. Yeah, this, this is a thing. I didn't realize that these existed. It's fascinating. That might well, be the first one. I'm looking them up. You know what this is though? Uh-huh. Um, well, one, it's it's a uh, it's, it's a bit low effort, but also, dude, they um, super low effort. Wizards of the Coast have been trying to corner or trying to get more into uh, younger children yeah. that yeah. market yeah. for a, quite a while. Like they have really basic uh, source books. It's smart. Kids. It's absolutely yeah, it's very those. smart. Those are really good. I, Actually, they're writ- written by David Zub. Or Jim Zub, mm. who mm-hmm. is a very mediocre uh, uh, comics books writer, but he's good at those. Very mediocre, yeah, yeah. unfortunately. Nice, nice guy. I mean, <laughs> look, he seems real nice. Up. He absolutely seems real nice. But, you know, his run on Conan was nothing special. <laughs> well, this is, if, this, if this isn't being recorded. Uh, yeah. It is all being recorded, my friend. It's all what? For, it's all what? for posterity. Well, not not to yeah, be released to necessarily. Oh no! You have to do. It's going to be yeah. tweeted to Jim Zub. All, all you have to do, Jason, is when I have something that I don't want, I just say before. And also, Jesse, don't release this. And, so that, uh, and then seven months later, you don't yeah. check up on whether I did uh, follow. I up never with that. do. So it there may very well be. See, don't worry, well, don't worry, Jason. You'll be fine. Well, let's. Uh, gosh, I I do I'm, have about. Uh, 45 minutes. Yeah. So well, we're waiting for, we're waiting for Evan to show up. As soon yeah. as he shows up, we'll start. Okay. But I, I, I didn't get it. to the, I didn't get to the best part about this. Okay, okay. So, um, there's a page on, on, uh, this about a new podcast, uh, about, uh, about, uh, black, it's called Three Black Halflings. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then if you zoom in, uh, it's called The Wagadoo Chronicles. And I zoomed in on a piece of the text in there that I thought was hilarious. It says, created by the three main characters or whatever. Um, and then African-inspired campaign setting asks, what would high fantasy be like if J.R.R. Tolkien had been born in Africa? Mm-hmm. Uh, which Jesse puts side by side with a Wikipedia entry with a circle around where 
uh, J.R. Tolkien was born, which was, oh. of course, Africa. <laughs> oh, God. Um, think, yeah. And then uh, what's so funny is like, you say, oh, say, well, that's, that's, you know, they just made a little mistake. Yeah. And so did the editors. Right beside that picture is a little notation that says, um, Image credit needed. <laughs> like, this is such a slapdash put together $5 job that, and everybody's saying, well, that's why it was at the dollar store. And I'm mm. like, yeah, I, I understand that, but, um, this is what they're, you know, this is what they're doing. They're, they Gosh, don't, yeah. it's sort of slapdash is, is the sort of the production, at least in this particular book. I've seen mm. that there, I mean, DD, it's interesting that DD is popular enough again now. There's these kind of, you know, hacked together products coming yeah. out and getting made in places like Dollar Trees. You know, it's very, well, it wasn't designed uh, for Dollar really, Tree. It's really a clearance, amazing. right? It's a clearance yeah. thing. It had a nine. It was okay. for the UK market. It had a nine pound marking oh, right. on it. Yeah, that's true. It did say, I, uh, yeah, there were. I guess the annual is more of a British thing. I don't know. Yeah, it's a great, a great thing. Is it? I don't know. Oh, <laughs> Sorry, dude, that was my brief. The Rupert annuals. Oh my god, they're so awesome. And you know, uh, so yeah, I was going to say, do we do we actually want to get started? Because we're um, waiting for Evan, Mister Slow. Yeah, I'm a I'm a bit worried that like he may be slow and well, we might said, not get much. Give me a few time with you, Jason. Oh yeah, I, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I did I did I did read the story. So I, I, I bring, that's all I bring to the table, though. I don't have any special connection to it or anything. Uh, that's um, fine. I'm know. going to prompt him. <laughs> we I mean, are I don't have anything you. special either. I oh, dude, <laughs> I have so much special stuff; it's unbelievable. Well, not you really. actually are a, you're actually are a French vampire. You're descended from a family of French warlocks. Hey, don't yeah. spoil it for me. I haven't read the story uh-huh. yet. <laughs> I'm just going based on the title. <laughs> uh, French warlocks. Wow. All right. Uh, this is going to be a good story when I finally read it. Uh, <laughs> Cato blepas omit. Oh yeah, this is another mistake. Typo, uh, typo. Cato blepas. There he is. Omit a foul, foul stench. Not emit. Omit. <laughs> ah. <laughs> is that in the text? Or That's in the that text. The... Yeah. Uh, and there's okay, a picture yeah. showing that. I'm like, because my students reading it to me, I'm like, omit. Are you sure it isn't emit? And he says, O M I T. And I'm like, That's omit. Oh, oh my God, Evans here. He's is he here? Hello. Yeah, I'm here. Not, not near his mic yet, though. Get close. We got to start. Everybody needs to leave. Okay. Who needs yeah, to leave? Yeah, I, I can't. I can't stay. I can't stay past a, probably five. Jason's um, got so, an um, appointment. Yeah, oh, okay. I'm just messing everything up. Does you? I'll, if I'll just, I'd, I'll just run out when I have to run out. And yeah. I'll, of course, continue. And then I'll, I'll do your voice and say bad things about Jim Zub. <laughs> That's great. Please do. <laughs> oh, good, good. See, it's authorized now, Connor. <laughs> yeah, okay. there we go. It's on recording. Yeah. All right. Uh let's get started, shall we? Evan, you near your yeah. mic now? Yeah. Okay. Oh, be. nice, nice, nice. Here we go. Uh so Jesse, Evan, Connor, uh Jason, okay? Hi, I'm mm-hmm. Jesse. So that's- oh, wait, one more time. Jesse, Connor, Evan, Jason. No, Jesse, Evan, Connor, Jason. There we go. Do you have a question, Connor? Nope. Okay. <laughs> Here we go.